Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Hamza Zoltzis. You're most welcome, sir. Zazakullah here for having me on. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Welcome, Assalam. Now, Hamza hardly needs any introduction, but just in case some would like one, I will just mention uh, briefly that he is the author of the best-selling book, The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. I love the title. Uh, he's a popular speaker, instructor, essayist, has a master's and postgraduate certificate in philosophy from the University of London. I understand you are currently pursuing a PhD as well in, in the field. Hamza. Yes, so it's the field of theophilosophy, so it's the interjection of kind of exegesis, hermeneutics, the Quran, science, and wow. so on and so forth. That's, that's amazing. Perhaps we'll talk about that later on. Um, I, I, you, you told me a bit earlier about what it's about. It's extremely interesting, actually. But today, um, Hamza has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to you, Hamza, intellectually. So over to you, sir. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, when you asked me to come and discuss this, it took me a while just to develop a shortlist. So I have to give you a caveat, which is I have a kind of quasi theory that you don't really read books. They read you. Ooh. And this is significant with regards to the Quran, of course, because I believe, you know, obviously you read the Quran, but the, but the Quran actually reads you. Mm-hmm. The Quran actually reads you. And likewise, from a kind of worldly perspective, when you're reading secular or even spiritual books, there is a process of development that you actually start to read yourself because the book is reading you in some way. And I think the evidence for that is when you read a good book, you're like, aha, yes, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. That connects with me. For example, if you read the works of the Korean-born German scholar, his name is Byung Chul Han. He wrote a book called The Agony of Eros. He eloquently makes a phenomenal point on this understanding of love. And he says, we live in a kind of secular, neoliberal, narcissistic society mm-hmm. where the other, in, in, mm-hmm. in this context, the individual, is no longer individualized, but rather he is consumed by this narcissism. In other words, we project ourselves on other people. And in the process of trying to love other people, the other, your beloved, what happens is you don't love them as they are because you no longer individualize them truly as the other, but rather you project yourself on them and you end up loving yourself and not them. (laughs) And, you know, he makes a phenomenal point because we end up not, we're not able to love people anymore because we're not really loving the other. We're just really loving projections, projections of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say to people, you know, true love is not loving someone the way you want to be loved, but rather loving someone the way they want to be loved. And that is very difficult because we all have different types of love languages. Now that's a summary of what he has said, 
And when I was reading that, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me <clears throat> because maybe I already had the idea simmering or there are parts of different, you know, at- atomic versions of this idea. It was brought together through the reading and it became a, a whole thing and a concept in my mind and my soul. So really, when, I, when, when, when reading books, sometimes they just end up reading you or bring up the best in you in, to a certain degree. Don't get me wrong, books also have you know, an epistemic function where they teach you new things, of course, and they, and they challenge your existing ideas. But good books also bring the best out of you to a certain mm. degree. Mm. So I just wanted to give that as an example. Oh, it's fascinating insight. Yeah, thank you for that. It's very interesting. And um, the other caveat is there were so many books I wanted to talk about, but I think these books were specifically chosen because one, they resonated with me, or I think they're very important in the context of sharing and defending Islam in the public square, sharing mm. and defending Islam intellectually and academically. And I feel these books contain very key concepts that can be applied in that in that context. So I, I felt that was an important thing to bring to light. That's why the books can be categorized under literature, philosophy of science, international relations, sociology. Uh, what was the other category? Uh, spirituality, uh, Christology. Yeah. So you know there there are books connected to that, and I think when we discuss them, hopefully people will be encouraged not only to read the book but to explore that area and understand how can we use that to show the best of ourselves and the best of Islam as well. Very good. The one that I just want to clarify, uh, um, I have a very clear view on this, but a lot of people think, ah, you know, um, we don't need these uh, these 3D books anymore. We can just download PDFs and just read them on our Kindle or whatever. I can't stand Kindle and I can't stand, I mean, I'd use PDFs, but I much prefer this old fashioned book, which I can open and close and and smell. I, I agree. Do you, what do you 100%, think? A hundred percent. Because you're relating to something, isn't it? Because the kind of online PDF, I mean, what are you really relating to? It's like, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe it's an old school thing, but picking up a book, having it in your bag is very important. Mm-hmm. You know what's very important? A book's battery never dies. Right? <laughs> and that's something very important for us to understand because we live in this online world. We're so, yeah, yeah. We are so immersed in this kind of online culture. We forget to, to engage with the physical book and that physical engagement, I think there is a, there's something going on there. There's a yeah, metaphysic, yeah, yeah. there's something going on. I, I think it's very important. And maybe you could infer from this, the ulama, the scholars, when they talk about reading the mushaf, reading the physical copy of the Quran, obviously mm. majority <clears throat> of opinion is that you have to read it in a state of wudu. Mm. But the opinion of reading the Arabic script of the Quran on your phone, you don't need to be in a state of wudu. Really? Yeah. So there's an interesting kind of spiritual metaphysical thing going on. So that suggests it's less real, perhaps, or, 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 or somehow not, not, not as significant in its objective objectivity. If the mushav in front of you, the physical copy is am I different from uh, and greater than the, the, the yeah, other yeah. The online copy? So I'm inferring from that just a general principle that, you know, engage with the book. It's mm-hmm. like there's something there's like maybe an unwritten kind of law that that's going on that helps mm-hmm. you understand the author much better, I guess. So yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you're old school like me. Excellent news. Okay, <laughs> brilliant. So the first book, uh, Paul, is actually a Greek book. <laughs> uh, it was translated in, into English, but I didn't. I couldn't find it. I think it's out of print. And I studied this book when I was around 14 years old, I believe. Right, and it was the first real book I think that I engaged with on a kind of literary analysis perspective 
And for some reason, I wasn't a fan of nonfiction, right? So I wasn't a fan of fiction. Right. I don't know why. For some reason, I just couldn't engage with fiction books that well. Mm. I was more into nonfiction. So, you know, I was a Bruce Lee fan. I bought Bruce Lee's books. You know, the, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do had a bit of his philosophy in there and a bit of martial arts. I used right. to engage with kind of, you know, things that I would find to be a little bit, a little bit more meaningful. But engaging with this fiction book, mm. I found that actually fiction can give you a hell of a lot of meaning and existential insight, phenomenological insight, oh, morals, ethics. Yeah, just, you just think of uh, Dostoevsky. Absolutely. Uh, example, uh, the famous absolutely. one. Absolutely. Uh, for so for that, philosophy and theology and ethical dilemmas and violence and chaos, but it's a very rich brew. So absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why, you know, it taught me a lot, actually. It took me out that that form of ignorance. And obviously, you know, the Quranic stories, you know, you know, take chapter Yusuf, for example, a mm. an analysis, even on a literary level of chapter Yusuf, you can you can get like a thousand lessons. Like there are more lessons than verses in that <laughs> chapter, and it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So this book was quite transformative for me, and I do mention it a lot sometimes in my talks. And it was written by Andonis Samaragis. Now and Donis Samaragis, he was uh, a Greek writer. He was born in August 1919. He died in August 8th, 2003. And his first stage of kind of literary development or expression was poetry in actual fact. Mm. But he is like a post-war phenomenon. And, and in the 1950s, he changed and he decided to basically turn, prose, uh, turn to prose fiction. So he was into expressing himself in fiction but it was it was extremely meaningful very deep and when you read his works like Zidida and Beast which means hope what what hope wanted or Dolathos which means the mistake right he basically has protagonists in these stories and generally speaking they're not named that they are anonymous because I feel he wants you to place yourself in the product in the protagonist right and when it comes to the book that I want to talk about, which is called Hope Wanted, Zidida and Bis, it's a series of short stories. And these sto- short stories basically talk about the agonies of the human condition. Mm. And it, th- reading them teaches a lot about empathy, being able to fill with people, being able to take people's shoes off, wear their shoes and walk a few, a few meters and understand the kind of deep personal struggles. And there is a structure to these stories. But before I get into that... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, here are some statements from Andonis Samaragis himself, which goes to show that he was a very sensitive character. He was an empath. He was really deeply concerned with the human condition, you know, especially his fellow Greek, because, you know, his one of his books actually, you know, terrifyingly um, predicted the kind of uh, the, the dictatorship that was to come, I think, in the late 50s or 60s. Oh, the, mili- the military dictatorship. In yes. The so um, he says things like, 
I witnessed the suffering of the people in the community, the poverty. These started to trouble me, and they and 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 I and and I thought something is happening here that is not going well. Why should there exist this terrifying iniquity? He also says these people need to change. And I think he was talking. He was he's giving a speech in the Greek Parliament, I believe, and he was talking about the political class. He said these people need to change. A people with many laws but no social justice. It is a people without empathy, without sensitivity, without affection, without the beauty of your own soul. So he's talking to the the the, the layman, the the average Greek. They don't have the beauty of your own souls, right? Then he talked about again. I was troubled by the social norms, poverty, unemployment, the loneliness of people, war. Then he makes a really really powerful point and says. Never have our houses been so close together until today, and yet never have our hearts been further apart until today. Wow. So he was deeply concerned with the human condition, deeply concerned. In actual fact, if I remember correctly, when I read out a translation of one of the short stories called Mia Nikta, One Night, I started crying mm. because it is actually a very, very, very powerful story. So the structure of zidid el beast the structure of hope wanted is a collection of short stories and as i said anonymous characters they're not named i think adonis samara i guess wants you to place yourself in the person and the language is very simple because in greek there are diff- it's like japanese in a way there are different styles of greek you have like you know academic uh, formal greek you have popular greek his style is very plain is for the average person mm. and you could really engage with the language and that's why it's easily translatable and it's easily understood but his style is also a fragmentary style and it's kind of racy it, it speeds up especially towards the end because one of his literary techniques when he has his kind of climactic conclusion if you like he has a lot of commas hardly any full stops and when you do that as a writer you're basically saying things you you're reading it fast right Right. And it's just really racy just to get you to the point of wow okay mm-hmm. I I understood what the whole story is about. Now the stories follow a very dark pattern right um and this echoes kind of the kind of existentialist stories that you have in kind of western literature you know mm-hmm. some of them are quite sad right and and quite painful. So his the pattern of his stories are, are as follows number 1 you have someone who has agony and pain it's a human being with agony and pain or a kind of a, a terrifying problem yeah an issue a concern number 2 that person now is in a state of desperation because all of this pain and agony is followed by desperately seeking an outlet some type of solution and then after as the story develops when they seek that solution they realize that the solution they tried to that they that they that they sought was actually absurd it's an absurd solution and then it ends with the person being in a state of disillusionment mm is it's actually really it's actually really sad honestly i i'm i'm laughing out of like sadness if that makes sense because you, it's like sometimes you don't know whether to laugh or cry but he really understood and reflected the postwar condition of the average greek and really if you could you could protract protract that and say the average human being so mm-hmm. i just want to read just like a, a short paragraph if you like of the story mia nikta one night wow and this story is quite significant especially today because in britain you know they they hired a loneliness minister because loneliness isolation solitude I, i didn't know this i missed that so we, we got yeah. a loneliness minister in the uk i believe so i think they did it about one or two years wow. ago 
uh, maybe maybe it's been that role has been disbanded. But from what I understand, they had a loneliness minister, oh. and it, it's significant yeah. because you know we have social media and we're so well connected. Mm-hmm. But loneliness and isolation is is yeah. a pandemic, right? Yeah. And this story is really about loneliness or the inability to express oneself and the need to find someone to express oneself. So the story is basically someone, you know, working in an office and it starts to snow. It's like the first snow of of an Athenian winter and everyone rushes to the window and opens the window, touches the snow and says, it's snowing, snowing. Right. And then he's still, he didn't, he doesn't get up, you know, he's not bothered or perturbed and he's in his work typing away. And then some lady comes up to him and basically says, look, come, it's, it's snowing. And then he just kind of looks up and ignores her. And she says, I know who you are. I know what you're like. You, you love isolation. You love being alone. But there is an internal conversation going on that he, he hates being lonely. He wants to express himself. He's in, he has deep anguish because he has the inability to express his problems, his, his, his concerns, his issues, and so on and so forth. And he's deeply trying to find and, and uh, uh, someone to connect with. So mm. fast forward the story is really in an amazing way. What happens is, you know, it's time to leave. And by, by the time, you know, everyone has to leave the office, you could just imagine there's a blanket of snow everywhere, right? So this lady walks out of the office and he follows her and he's trying to build himself up to say, you know, can I have a word? Because he thinks that she is the one that he could talk to because, you know, paradoxically or, biz- or in, a, in a really bizarre way, you know, she said, you like isolation. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, it, that, that wasn't the case. But he probably felt, well, that is my way of, of trying to speak to someone because at least she reached out to me. No one else did. She tried yeah, to understand yeah. me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is my reading, the psychological reading of it. Anyway, so as she walks out, he's just about, he's got the courage to speak to her. But as he's about to say something, her scarf drops. And then, so he's like, you know, kind of stunned or shocked or, 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 or he's lost the courage. And all he says is, you know, your scarf has dropped or he points to it or something. Yeah. So what he does, he ends up just walking and walking and it becomes night and he's walking and he passes, you know, the office area. He goes to the industrial estate. And as you can imagine, there's no houses and he's walking and walking. And, it, and it, I think it passes midnight. It's all dark, but you can see some lights because of, you know, the industrial estate and some lamps and so on and so forth. And, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to build his courage up to try and speak to someone or he wants to speak to someone. And this is the last paragraph and it's actually really, really sad. So, and I've translated it myself, so I do apologize. He, it says his questions, his anxieties, his anguish bothered him deep inside his chest. If only he could open his heart. If only he could pray. If he believed in a higher power, he would have asked this one thing, to be able to open his heart. He had a wave in his chest. It pressured him. He sought an outlet. As he passed the corner of a factory, he saw towards his left, near the wall, near the wall a shadow. He stopped on the spot. Fear dominated him. Just a few meters away from him, a man with a felt hat, motionless, was staring at him. The night was dark and calm. His fear kept him back for a few seconds. He went closer to the stranger who, just like him, was all alone in the night. He felt him close, very close. The wave in his chest pressured pressured him, forced him. Something broke inside. 
Finally, he was liberated and opened his heart out to the stranger. Who knows which children's hands had directed, had directed him there. He opened his heart to a snowman. <laughs> yeah, that is a very, very sad story. Wow. You know, I've read it so many times, it chokes me up. Oh, that's a hell, that's a hell of an ending. Wow. What a, what a, that is, what a, yeah, it's a, I'm telling you, I, I, one of my kind of, you know, sub-projects is to try and translate the whole book, whole book because I can't find it in English, although I believe it has been translated into English, but it's phenomenal. It is, like, outstanding. And what this book, I think, taught me is the power of literature, the power of telling a story, sometimes mm. telling a story in this way, in an eloquent way, with a particular literary style, can basically summarize volumes of academic work, summarize volumes yeah. of intellectual content. And that's the power of narrative. And, and that's actually the power of the Quranic stories as well, because the, yeah. the, the Quranic stories actually um, have that power too, of course. And we can unpack that another day. But the point here is this was the kind of beginning of appreciating mm. literature. And what's interesting here as well is, you know, post-war Greece, you know, there was a lot of communism going on. There was people who had empathy and these type of sensitivities like Andonis Samaragis, they moved away from religion, I believe. They also, you know, probably saw religion as, you know, a, a negative force for the world. And they were into things like, you know, left-wing anarchism and also maybe some communist groups. Like even today in Greece, Gapa Gapa Epsilon, which is the KKE, the Communist Party of Greece, I think they're the third biggest party, right? Um, at, at one point, they were the second biggest party or something. So, you know, it, God wasn't in the picture for them, especially post-war Greece. And it, as it, you can imagine... Someone like Nietzsche, this uh, great secular prophet uh, who died, I think, in, in the year uh, 1900, who, in a sense, foresaw this, this kind of nihilistic void in the heart of of European man anyway. Mm. And now that's just played out. You see it in Jean-Paul Sartre, in his, you know, say his novels like La Nausea, The Nausea, uh, which is kind of a, a very similar short story, which dramatizes the uh, the sickness that you uh, that you feel, that this individual feels when they realize that life has no meaning and it's empty and there's nihilism. It's terrible. So really depressing story. I don't recommend you read it, really. Um, mm. But, but there's, there's, there's certain characteristics that you, you describe, which, are, which is characteristic of, of post-war European literature. It's there in the music, too, in the drama mm -hmm. uh, and in the art, where in the paintings, which, take, which often celebrate ugliness and discord and the uh, the disfiguration of a human image and yes. um you see that in Tate Britain this uh, sorry Tate Modern I should say in London in the art gallery there I was there recently it's extraordinary art art um some of it but anyway uh, so I, I'm just connecting what you've said to uh the, the wider literary artistic yeah absolutely, absolutely. by the way I forgot to mention Paul and I'm not saying this just to you know you know throw dust in your face but I have to admit your channel is probably the most mature intellectual spiritually vibrant channel uh that exists on youtube at the moment it is you know one of my favorite channels i do promote it often on twitter and i just have to say that it's an inspiration like you're an inspiration right well, uh, you know we've, we've known we're very blessed if it is if it is an inspiration it is because precisely because of guests like yourself who come on and and bring that uh, that 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 content, which uh, is often not found in many other media, so uh, mm -hmm. I, I know the credit belongs to God, but also to the guests who, who bring this content. Uh, 
uh, to, to, to a wider audience, to me, obviously, mm. as well. So thank you. Exactly here for that. I mean, I mean, but yeah, I wanted to say it because as a form of encouragement, we've okay. known of each other for, for years, I think over a decade, but we've never had like proper conversations like this. But okay. just seeing what you've been able to achieve is phenomenal. And also brothers and sisters coming from different spectrums of Islamic thought. I appreciate like there's one uh, uh, Shafi scholar brother that I know from Green Lane Mosque. He called your he called <laughs> he called your YouTube channel the Switzerland of the internet or something. Yeah, yeah, I heard yeah. that. I had no idea what he meant by that. And <laughs> I, I asked some friends, "What does he mean?" And they came with different theories. All of them very worrying, actually. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'll park that to one side and just move on. So. Um, well, think your your next choice of books. I, I have had preview of your list of books here. Is uh, very different, and um, I'm actually tempted to order this book. On in fact, I have uh, put it on my my list of books to buy on Amazon. I must confess. But anyway, do you want to share the? Yes. So it's the theory and reality: an introduction to the philosophy of science by Peter Godfrey Smith. Mm. Now, this is what I would call an advanced introduction to the philosophy of science. Okay. Mm. And the reason I feel this book is like a representation of my own intellectual journey, because being aware of the philosophy of science actually helps you. It helps you in many ways. It helps you transcend this kind of popular scientism. It helps you basically deal with the kind of crude and shallow attacks against religious discourse, against the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, against the Quran. And you're able to navigate that space effectively because you now understand the kind of philosophical assumptions or the, the philosophy of science, which is extremely important. So, for example, you know, like any book in the philosophy of science will talk about, you know, what is the theory? What is the epistemic status of a particular theory? And as you know, you have an understanding of theories that obviously, generally speaking, you know, theories that are well confirmed, that have that are successful, that have predictive power, have a very high epistemic status, for sure. But there is a discussion on, well, you know, what is the, what is, what, what is the epistemic nature or status of these particular the of, 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 of a well-confirmed successful theory? And you have things like realism, anti-realism, instrumentalism, and there is a discussion on, you know, obviously most philosophers of science and most scientists at what you would call realist, scientific realist, which generally speaking is that well-confirmed successful theories of predictive power are a representation of the actual state of affairs. They represent reality, the truth. Yeah. Obviously, anti-realism doesn't hold that position. Instrumentalism basically says that, you know, well-confirmed theories with predictive power, you know, they are, they're not a representation of the truth, but they're workable models to help us navigate reality from that perspective. So this book focuses on realism and uh, Peter Godfrey Smith, he argues for a kind of common sense approach to realism because he understands there is a problem when it comes to scientific realism. Mm. Because when we look at the past, when there were, were well-confirmed theories with predictive power, they actually, we found out that they were not true, right? And he says, well, how can we make sense of realism? So he advocates a kind of common sense realism based on a kind of naturalistic philosophy, but we don't have to unpack that there. But he, he, he argues for a type of realism that says, yes, we believe there is a reality out there in the world that you can discover, and that uh, science, the scientific method, is the best way of discovering that reality. But there is a caveat here, and that caveat is, 
even though we believe successful theories of predictive power and um, are representations of the actual state of affairs, they can change, right? They right. can change. So the, 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 to use the jargon, the paradigm can shift. You know, there's Thomas Kern's great yes. book called Paradigm Shifts, a, a, a seminal work in the, I think the 1980s, uh, which is also on the philosophy of science. But um, I'm I, I sort of aware that he's also uh, criticized the arguments of intelligent design proponents as well. So he, he, he is critically... Uh, 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 maybe Dembski, I think, is one of the uh, this American mathematician slash, um, well, he's many things, kind of a polymath, really. So he, he's entered into this kind of um, a, a arena of, of discourse. Um, but uh, is he aware of the distinction? I'm sure he is aware of the distinction, uh, uh, Peter Godfrey Smith, between mainstream science, which is recognizing its utility and validity in some sense, giving us an understanding of reality out there, and scientism, which is the more philosophical position that science, what science investigates and what science gives us is the ultimate reality. And, and that is the, the metaphysical foundation of the truth. There's a big difference, isn't there? Because there all of us can affirm the former. Yes, so the Quran it constantly exhausts us to use our reason to look, to observe, yes. to investigate. But it's not saying, obviously, that science... Uh, or, the, or the, the dunya, to use Muslim language, is the ultimate reality, far from it. Yes, so absolutely. So I, I think, look, in fairness to Peter Godfrey Smith, he appreciates that because he understands, for example, what he calls the mother of all problems, the problem of confirmation, the problem of induction. He talks about, you know, his kind of um, common sense view on scientific realism. And he's, I, 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 from my reading, he's not an advocate of that type of scientism, that science right. is the only way to form conclusions about the world and reality, not not at all. Okay. And even yeah, and in, even if you were believed, even if you thought even if you thought that were to be the case, he would put the caveat and basically say, well, those conclusions, even we think that they're they're true and the the theories are actual representations of reality, they can still change, right? Yes. So, but he doesn't hold that view or that kind of crude scientism view uh, because that is a crude view. Although, in fairness to the academy, if you like, there are discussions of different forms of scientism, yeah? Yes. So from, from what I remember, there are things like metaphysical scientism, epistemic scientism. So there are things to unpack in that field as well. But generally speaking, when it comes to the theory and reality, the book itself, it's a good introduction because it talks about the problem of induction. And that's actually a key concept that helps us when we talk about Islam and religious discourse, because what is induction? Induction is a thinking process where you move from the known to the unknown, from the observed to the unobserved. And for example, if I observe a thousand white sheep and that's all the observations that I, I have, then I'm going to conclude that the next sheep is going to be white. For me, I might think that's a valid inference based on the observations that I've had. Yeah. Or I'm going to say all sheep are white. I can make a strong inference or a weaker inference. The point is, it's an inference. It's probabilistic. Yes. It's given the fact that so, yeah. it's like people say, well, see, see uh, the, the sun has always risen. Every day the sun has always risen, a day after day. Therefore, tomorrow the sun will rise. Yes. Well, that, that, that's an inductive argument. It's, it's not absolutely certain that it will. Maybe absolutely. not. Um, yes, <laughs> for sure. So uh, given, given, given the fact that we have observed black sheep, uh, people will now understand the kind of yeah, epistemic weakness, if you want to use that term, of the inductive inference because they could always, and this is a really key point, there can always be another observation yes. that contradicts our current conclusions or goes against our current observations, which were the basis 
over current conclusions. And even Richard Dawkins makes this point. He's actually newest, really? right? Yeah, yeah. He, in, in his book, I think it's called The Devil's Chaplain. Oh. He, or a devil's, was it The Devil's Chaplain or A Devil's Chaplain? Anyway, it's in that book. He talks about, obviously, a distinction between the Darwinian mechanism and evolution. But he says, you know, Darwinism, we may reject it in the future altogether based on future observations. Or it may change so much, it goes, it's beyond any recognition. So he accepts the idea that, and this is, by the way, this is the beauty of science, right? This is the beauty of science. Mm. You're not supposed to say this is the absolute truth. No, no. Obviously, there is a difference between direct observations, one observation, you know, if you see the moon, it's round. That's not really a scientific conclusion per se. That's just direct observation, right? But when we talk about more complex uh, theories, you know, there is a range of observations and you need to uh, develop a kind of uh, a rationalization on how to understand all those observations and, you know, develop a theory. Anyway, uh, the I, point I, I, here I, I, is... Yeah, no. sorry. Carry on. Yeah, so the point here is the understanding, you know, this epistemic problem, if you like, that you're not going to get certainty from the inductive inference right. actually will help you a lot, especially when it comes to, you know, religious discourse. When you talk about the Quran, when someone says, hey, we have a particular theory is well confirmed as predictive power, but it goes against any interpretation of the Quranic discourse, right? Then you say, even if that were to be the case, let's just assume that were to be the case, we could say, so what? It's, it's all about now your epistemic weighting. So if, as a Muslim, I believe the Quran has, you know, a, a very heavy epistemic weight, right? Because it's come yeah. from Al-Alim, Al-Hakim. It's come from the knowing, the wise. Allah has, it's certain. It's not probabilistic. It's certain. Yes. Allah has the picture. Yeah. yeah. Allah has the picture. We've got the pixel, right? Which is your so famous... If, uh, yeah. I hope you that because it's very... very <laughs> so if, if that's the case, if yeah. that's the case then when it comes to scientific theories, even if they're well confirmed with predictive power, mm. and if there is a contradiction, you can never reconcile, then it should never be a problem for the Muslim because you know there can always be another observation in the future or in the present that can contradict the, our current conclusions, right? Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, we, if we, when we understand the epistemic weighing here, the Quranic epistemic weight is higher than you know, science or scientific theories, it shouldn't even give you a problem. Now, this doesn't mean now you reject the theory. And this is where the practical, a functional approach occurs, right? right. We don't have to accept a well-confirmed theory in our creed and say, this is our metaphysics, this is the absolute truth, if it contradicts the Quran. But you can accept it practically. There's nothing wrong with that. You can say, fine, this theory, it's you know the kind of metaphysical implications or the implications of the theory, is that it contradicts a Quranic narrative. However, it works. If we use this theory, we can use it in order to develop, for example, concerning the Darwinian mechanism, antibiotics. And when you use, uh, develop antibiotics, you can save life. And Allah says, if you save one life, it's like saving the whole of humanity. I can use it practically and accept it practically, but I don't have to accept it creedily or metaphysically. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with that because you know that just because something works, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And we've seen this with the whole debate of the realists the, and the anti-realists and the instrumentalists and the philosophy of science. We see that well-confirmed theories of predictive power and that were working ended up being false or ended up not being the complete picture. And we know this with the theory of phlogiston and other theories. In actual fact, the atheist philosopher, I think he's an atheist, philosopher of biology, philosopher of science, Elliot Sober, he actually makes that point. He says, 
even in actual fact, you could get, you could resurrect past theories uh, and they could have maybe, you know, as great, uh, as, as, uh, as uh, they could be as, they could have predictive power, like, like current successful theories too. Mm. Um, so the point I'm trying to say here is just because something works, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's true. Yes, from a historical perspective or even an academic perspective, realism emerged because science was working and that for them was amazing, right? And that for them was a kind of initial uh, driving force for them to conclude that well-confirmed scientific theories are a representation of the actual state of affairs. But they obviously eventually realized that they can't be um, uh, infallibilists from that perspective. They have a... I just, uh, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking a possible ex- example I, I can relate to. So in the Newtonian world, the world of Isaac Newton, the English uh, physicist, mathematician, whatever, um, in the 17th century, the, the world that he he t- told us about the, of of gravity, the famous apple falling uh, off off the tree, and so on, um, worked. A lot of people, you know, you, you could actually make predictions on it, uh, and you could do important industrial activity based on Newtonian physics and Newtonian mathematical predictions. Uh, the principle of Mathematica, for example. And then, then comes along a patent clerk, I think he was, in uh, an office in Switzerland in 1907, I think it was, called Einstein. And, of course, he revolutionised the whole thing with the general theory of relativity and the idea of space-time and the whole idea of warped. I mean, going into all of that. Now, it doesn't mean that people who based uh, predictions and, and, and solutions to problems based on Newtonian worldview, that was all fiction. No, it worked. But the deeper understanding is, uh, uh, as, as we now know from Einstein, and, uh, and, and at the extremes, Newton was wrong. You know, they're the, the, the very, very big, shall we say, the huge, the, the cosmic. He, he was wrong. The gravity is not quite as he understood it. And we have space, time, and we have this, and we have that. Um, and, and that understanding itself, that paradigm uh, itself, may one day be superseded by yet another paradigm of yes. even more extraordinary wonderment uh, for want of a better word. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know what it would be like, of course. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of validate your point in my own understanding of how, how many people did base their lives on a, on a Newtonian understanding of physics and the world and gravity and so on, uh, and, and did real things on the basis of that. But nevertheless, it was in many important respects wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In the larger so, understanding we have today. So the Newtonian understanding is not a complete representation of reality. It doesn't it's, it's, it's not a, re- a representation of the actual state of affairs because you have, for example, a quantum reality where Newtonian physics cannot really be applied. And yeah. those two things are non-complementary paradigms. Maybe there's going to be a greater theory that's going to consume both of them yes. and produce yeah. something, something different and a different reality understanding. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it just, just a really basic under- uh, reading of the history of science would teach us to be a little bit more uh, have epistemic exactly. humility when it comes to these things exactly. and it will make us understand just because something works it doesn't necessarily mean to be true in an absolute way and yet there may, there may be future observations that can contradict our current conclusions and that's the beauty and nature of science and when you and you, if you use science to bash religion well that doesn't make sense because you're making an epistemological disqualification you're assuming that you know the the the, the the epistemic weight of scientific theories are equivalent to the epistemic weight of the Quran. And that's a problem in itself. And some Muslims fall for that trap, unfortunately. Yes. Um, yes and, and, and obviously we can unpack that another time. So, but the whole point of this book, it goes through induction. It goes through uh, scientific realism. It goes through Popper. It talks so many different things, but it's a very important, I would call it an advanced introductory book 
to yeah, read. It's not, it's not, by the way, folks, this is not, I, I've looked at the contents page and this is not a, a an entry-level text. It's not an introduction, it's not a real introduction to the general public. This is an advanced yeah. introduction, as you In said. In actual fact, this was one of the main readings for my master's for this, the module Philosophy of Science. Yeah, I, I'd so say this it's definitely postgraduate level. Yeah, uh, and, and what's interesting now. is, you know, he also goes into, for example, confirmation and confirmation theory, and he goes through mm. uh, 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 Bayes' theorem and uh, Bay Bay Bayesianism, yeah? yeah. Uh, when he talks about, for example, you know, how do we understand evidence using uh, probability theory? And, you know, the majority of the scientists and maybe even the philosopher science, they basically starting to think, right, how do we now uh, uh, appreciate, how do we attach a probability value to a particular theory? And what is the, you know, if something is one, that means you know, it's, 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 it's true, right? Uh, it has a value of one. If something has a value of zero, then it's not true. If something has a value of 0 0.5, then you're getting closer to something, okay, there is a possibility that this theory could be an actual rep a representation of, of, of the actual state of affairs. If it's like 0.7, then you're more likely likely to say, you know, it's well, so well confirmed, then, you know, it would be silly for us to reject this truth or reject this theory. You know, we should, it has a higher epistemic value. Now, this is a very complicated subject, but uh, they're using a Bayes' theorem, which is like a probability theory, to apply to uh, scientific theories to understand uh, the epistemic value, if you like. Now, to cut a long story short, there are philosophical problems with this, and even Peter Godfrey Smith discusses some of them, but also generally speaking in the whole philosophy of science, they haven't ended up with a certain, they haven't got an agreed upon value where you would say this theory is unlikely to change in the future. It's something that we could hold on to, right. uh, you know, from a kind of epistemic perspective that we know that this is more likely to be true. And there are other philosophers of science and even scientists that actually reject using Bayes' theorem. And they, you know, there's other theories of confirmation. Yeah, this, this, this reminds me, I mean, in the history of, of Western philosophy, with Descartes, René Descartes, the famous French uh, philosopher, uh, trying to reestablish modern epistemology, science on firm foundations, not these old Aristotelian, scholastic, out of date, medieval, uh, clearly out of date, you know, no. So, so, so you went to great lengths to reestablish uh, certainty of knowledge on X, Y, and Z. I won't go into that. That was one thing. And then, of course, you have René, um, then you have Manuel Kant in his uh, uh, celebrated critic of pure reason, seeking to establish epistemology on a much more. And you, uh, but all of these are great, but but none of them seem to have the the, char the characteristic of de definitive certain knowledge that is universally accepted by everyone, or some are more popular than others. Kant's very popular. And so I'm not surprised in what you've just said that, yeah, yeah. you're disputed. These things always are disputed. Even those brilliant minds, I just mentioned two, you know, uh, Kant and Descartes, and there are many others, uh, ha have not received universal uh, agreement and acceptance by philosophers or scientists. So, and this I, is I, a I really good, yeah. And this is a really good discussion because it shows the audience that you know we can't fall for the kind of, you know, the crude, sometimes atheistic or secular narrative that this is like, you know, this is it. This is the established. Yeah, you know, a way of, of, you know, understanding what truth is. And mm. if you reject this, and if your religion rejects this, therefore your religion is false. But it's far more complicated nuance than that. And that's why, you know, obviously we haven't unpacked these issues probably because it's conversational, but I want this to inspire people to get a book like this in yep. order for them to be empowered with the philosophy of science. And if they're using it the right way, 
and they yeah. understand the epistemic uh, nature of the Quran, its epistemic yeah. weight is much yeah. higher than scientific theories, yeah. then even if there is a kind of so-called mm. contradiction that you cannot reconcile, it's ne- it never should be a problem for the Muslim, right? Yeah, there, so there, there is a way. There is a way. Of, uh, there's a methodology. There's there's a, a processes by which these things can be uh, uh, um, dealt with, and it's, it's not a fundamental problem. But I, I will, Absolutely. I will, I, in the description below, I will uh, put links to where I can to these books, so people wanted to get them for themselves. Perfect. Yeah. So the next book is Testimony of Philosophical Study by C. A. Cody, right? Hmm. Now, this book, generally speaking, in from a Western philosophical perspective. Was a key, it was a milestone book, actually. I think it was published in 1991. And it was one of the key books that kind of revived the kind of epistemology of testimony. Yeah. Yeah, then you have works by Benjamin McMiller, by, by Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, by Keith Lehrer. And it's a phenomenal area of work. And it's actually not really touched by, you know, many public speakers. You know, we don't really speak about this a lot. But in actual fact, it's a fundamental source of knowledge in Western epistemology, in yes. Eastern. I don't even like using Western and Eastern in that sense, but you get the point, right? Yeah. So it's, 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 a, it's a key, it's a key uh, fundamental, indispensable source of knowledge. Now, why did I choose this book? In order right, to because the connections with, with Islam are, are, are key. Uh, I, can, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but I can imagine you can make a connection with, dare I oh, say... The, the connections are phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal. Mutawata and... Absolutely, absolutely. I thought you might do that. I thought you might do that. <laughs> hmm. so, so, so basically, look, so what is uh, testimony? Testimony, the epistemology of testimony is, you know, the belief in the state of others. It's actually that simple. However... There are certain kind of epistemic criteria, if you like, to assess the utterance or the expression of someone and what they've said and whether or not you should, it constitutes testimonial knowledge. Yeah. And there's lots of discussion on this. For example, interestingly, Keith Lehrer, he's an emeritus professor. Uh, I think he's an epistemologist. He talks about this. He talks about trust. And this is phenomenal. And this is was published what, in the past 10 years or something. He says, we must be trustworthy in our assessment of the trustworthiness on others in, in order for testimonial knowledge, for, for, for an, a, a knowledge that has been conveyed through the state of others to constitute testimonial knowledge, valid testimonial knowledge. Obviously, I'm just summarizing what he's saying, what he's saying, but what does that sound like to you, bro? It sounds just like the Hadith scholars have been practicing. <laughs> exactly. Volumes and volumes of biographical detail. Who was this guy? Could he have known someone else? Was he trustworthy? Was he a sin? Was he this? Was he that? Was he a liar? Can he be real? I mean, the, the multiple criteria that have been developed in Hadith criticism, as it's called, to yes. ensure that the reports that go back to the Prophet upon him be peace are sahih, that they yes. are you know, authentic. And, and, Authentic. And this is a really, really important um, point in the integrity of, of uh, Islam. And, and your introduction, uh, mentioning this book uh, by Cody is really interesting. Yeah, for sure. So, so Keith Leverett mentions this and, you know, Cody makes a very interesting point and he makes a, 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 quite a, a, a point that anyone, any lay person would understand. He says, you know, many of us have never seen a baby born nor have most of us examined the circulation of the blood, nor the actual geography of the world, nor any fair example of the laws of the land, nor have we made the observations that lie behind our knowledge that lights in the, that the lights in the sky are heavily body, bodies immensely distant. Now, what he's trying to say is a lot of the knowledge that you take to be scientific and true, is on in actual fact for you, it's not empirically based. No. It's actually based on testimony. 
For example, yeah. I do this all the time, Paul, in lectures. Well, I do this a lot. I say to them, you know, how do you know China exists? Hmm. Give me empirical evidence. And, and, and by the way, I say to them, whoever's been to China, uh, you can't get involved in this. But now, <laughs> I, I, but now I include them as well. Right. So give me proof. And all the evidence they give me is unbelievable. It's an amazing kind of uh, uh, discussion that we have, right, with the audience. Every single evidence they've given me is testimonial in nature. Mm-hmm. They gave me the map. That's testimony. Someone drew it. Someone, you know, I don't care if there's millions of those maps. The point is, you have to believe that someone drew a map with a border and called it China. That's testimonial transmission. E, and someone said, oh, I saw a video, a documentary on China. <laughs> and I said, well, that's, you have to believe that they were in China. That's their say-so. You have to believe that it is actually a documentary in a place called China uh, and so on and so forth. So this is all testimonial transi- transmission. Then they said, oh, I've met a Chinese person before. Yeah, but they have to tell you the Chinese. They have to tell you the Chinese, right? That's testimonial transmission. So all the evidence they give me is in, in actual fact a form of testimonial transmission. I even do this with them, with our own mothers. I say, look, the person that you call your mother, do you believe she gave birth to you? She says, they say, yes. I want evidence to prove that she gave birth to you. I'm this is, this you is no joke, Hamza, because I, I forget the statistic, but recently, and I, I, this is not the first time this has been mentioned, a disturbing number of uh, people who obviously have a mother and father are actually wrongly, the parents are actually not their biological parents. Oh, my uh, God. And, and because, you know, the... the, the that they were conceived by in other circumstances, you know, it's a surprisingly large, I mean, not a huge number, but it's like, I forget, you know, what percentage it is, but there are a lot of people walking around who think they know their parents, actually they're not their parents. Um, it, it, so, I, I, but also there's, I think without going to this a very different subject, but there seems to be a breakdown in trust uh, amongst many people. And you see this uh, in public knowledge. So people will doubt, for example, that, uh, you know, astronauts went to the moon, that we, that we yes. even went to the moon, or, or in fact that NASA is telling us the truth when it says the Earth is round, because the Earth really <laughs> is flat. But we laugh. I mean, you, you know, we've been to Speaker's Corner. There are some otherwise perfectly sane people who argue at Speaker's Corner that the Earth is flat and they don't trust NASA. Oh, well, you haven't you seen the footage? Haven't you seen the photographs of Earth being nice and round? Oh, no, it's all fake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, so you have to use rational arguments to reconstruct very basic things, like the fact that the Earth is round. And you go back to Absolutely. arguments that the ancient Greeks came up with two and a half thousand years ago. Actually, very good arguments to demonstrate logically why actually the Earth is round. Yes, and you have to argue that with twenty first century educated Westerners. I mean, yeah, you can't make I, it, it up. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. But that goes to show that trust is very important for knowledge, right? Exactly. Um, That's the point. That's now. The point. So concerning what you said about, so what I'm saying about the mothers, you know, yeah. uh, the, the arguments they gave me were, were just testimonial. Now they even said, oh, DNA, I could get a DNA test. I said, hold on a second. Your belief now that you believe she gave birth to you is not based on a potential DNA test. And even if you get a DNA test done, it's still testimonial because so it's trusting someone else. Yeah. Yes. Unless you do the DNA yeah. test yourself. Exactly. But your current knowledge that you believe she gave birth to you is based on testimonial transmission. Number one, your mom told you, you have a birth certificate, you may have hosp- hospital records, um, you trust your mother. Even if you have a photo of yourself, that's still testimonial because they have to say that was you because you, you, weren't, you didn't emerge from your mother's womb like the way you are now with you know, a shirt and glasses. Of course not. You're a baby. So they have to say that was you when you were a child. Uh, even if you you happen to look like your mother, it doesn't make a difference. Like I, you know, I may look like my auntie or my uncle. It makes it doesn't make a difference. That's not what you would call direct empirical. 
there is, when I go through this discussion, they all give me arguments that are based on testimonial transmission. Now, I'm not saying it to dismiss testimonial, testimonial transmission. I'm showing them the validity and the fundamental nature of testimonial transmission. I even do this with the round worth, uh, around Earth, Paul. I say to them, prove to okay. me the world is round. And I'm telling you, even scientists in the room, all they can give me is testimonial transmission. Many of them haven't done the math. They haven't, no, they didn't do what Anaxagoras did in what, 500 BC. They yeah. just say, well, we've got the pictures, we've got a rocket. But all of that is secondary because it's see, we, 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 This is not new, Hamza, because I, I remember um, studying, uh, running back to Descartes, uh, Descartes' book uh, called The Meditations. There's nothing to do, yes. with, nothing to do with Buddhism, by the way. This yeah, is, yeah, of course. This is a philosophical reflections. And, and he employed, because uh, he wasn't a skeptic, absolutely not, but he employed what, what we could call methodological skepticism to systematically doubt everything that could be doubted in exactly the way you've described, actually. You can be a very modern example of that, but the process is exactly the same, I think, to, to whittle away. So he come back to the one indisputable thing he could, he could not doubt. And what was that that he was doubting? Cogito ero sum. Yes. I think, therefore, I am. He couldn't deny in the act of doubting that he was thinking that he was doubting. Therefore, that gave him the certainty. And from that, through an elaborate process the, of the ontological argument, actually very interesting, he, he refounded, in, in his view anyway, whole epistemology on much firmer foundations. Because as you have said, all those examples, if Descartes were alive today, he said, yep, I've been there, done that. And, uh, and here is my solution. Uh, I personally don't find it convincing, but this is a, mm. a familiar, what I'm trying to say is, this is a very familiar philosophical problem yes. that people have uh, thought about for centuries. And you've given it, we've given it a very modern flavor. We're talking about NASA and the roundness of the sure, earth. Sure, sure. Yeah. But in fairness, I'm trying to do it in a way not to dismiss uh, oh. the, the, the source of knowledge, which is testimony and its fundamental and indispensable nature. I'm doing it to show them that you, you actually agree with what I'm about to say about testimony, yeah. that it is yeah. a fundamental and indispensable source of knowledge. Yeah. Now, now, I want to tell you a story, Paul. You're going to love this, right? Because, you know, as part of our work, we, we go to people's houses. We talk to people who have left the religion and so on and so forth. And everyone's on a journey. Everyone has ups and downs. There was one particular moment. This was many years ago, so I'm paraphrasing the story. I was, I think it was in Cambridge, and I was at a family's house. And there was this guy who left the religion. And he was like, you know, typical kind of, you know, new atheist tropes and stuff like that. He's empirical. He loves science, all of that stuff. And from what I remember, I spent hours with him and I gave him as much as I can. And, you know, I, I'm on my own journey as well. Maybe I was a little bit arrogant. And, and at the end, I got a bit frustrated because he was like, I don't believe in the Quran because the Quran says the world is flat. And I was like, oh, my God. And I got a bit, you know, maybe a little bit arrogant. I said, yeah, the world is flat. So what? <laughs> kind of thing. I said something like that. I said, you prove to me the world is round. I put him on the back foot. I said, I want you to prove to me the world is round. I'm telling you, Paul. I think he changed colors, man. He was saying <laughs> things like ridiculous things. If you go on top of the mountain, you can see the curvature of the earth. Yeah, maybe you can see the curvature, but it doesn't mean it's round. It could be a semicircle. It could be a flower shape. Then, then he said, oh, if you get a plane, you go one direction, you end up in, 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 uh, in the same space. So it means it's round. I don't know if that's scientifically true, but I said, have you done that? No, he hasn't. He was giving me all of these arguments, right? Uh, oh, he said, it's so obvious. The science books, the pictures. I said, this is yeah, all yeah. testimonial. I said, where's your empirical evidence? He didn't even know the math. And he was getting frustrated. You know what he said at the end? What? He said, the shadows. Ah. And you know what I said to him? 
We're getting a bit close to the ancient Greek argument here, aren't we? The, but the... listen to this, Paul. This is amazing. What does Allah say in the Quran? Mm. Indeed, in the alternation of the night and day are signs for people who reflect. I gave him this ayah. His mouth was, from what I remember, open. And I said to him, look at your arrogance. You were pointing the finger at the Quran saying that it's false. The only argument you can formulate to prove that the world was round was in the book, that's also in the book, wow. that you believe is actually false because you think it says the world is flat. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a phenomenal moment, right? And this was all based on the basic concept of testimony, right? Yeah. Now, I tell you what the, the, one of the best parts of this book is, right? So, as you know, David Hume is the kind of Scottish skeptic, right? And he talks about, in his inquiry concerning human understanding, the validity of testimony. And he says, we may observe that there is no species of reasoning more common, more useful, and even necessary to human life than that which is derived from the testimony of men. So he appreciated the kind of validity and the importance of testimony. However, he had a condition. He never believed it was fundamental and indispensable. He said, the reason we believe in testimony because it agrees with our collective experiences, okay? It agrees with our collective experiences. And I believe Cody described this as the reductionist account of testimonial transmission. So Cody argues for a non-reductionist account, if you like. He says the reductionist thesis is false. Now, the reason it's false is because he says, well, Hume and others who argue this, they only accept testimony um, if they don't accept testimony on a priori grounds. They have to accept testimony on a posteriori, meaning that there is external evidence to support that testimonial transmission. But, But Hume... His problem is, and this is where the vicious circle uh, occurs, and this in, in, own, in Cody's own words, it's a vicious circle. Hume says, we only accept testimony if it agrees with our collective experiences. However, Cody argues in a very smart way, how do you know what our collective experiences are? You have to rely on the same self of others. You, you, because you can't experience everything yourself. In actual fact, if you only relied on all your own individual experiences, you would not have knowledge. So for knowledge to progress and for you to even have knowledge, you need to understand other people's collective experiences. And rightly so, Hume makes that point. We need, you know, it has to, we, we know, collective experiences are important. But how do you get to know other people's experiences? It's through the say-so of others. There's a circular when, argument. Yeah. yeah, and it's a circular argument. So um, Cody basically argues that, you know, Hume's appeal to collective observation expo- exp- exposes a vicious circle. Hume claims that testimony can only be justified if the knowledge that someone is testifying to is in agreement with observed facts. However, what Hume implies by observed fact is not personal observation, but rather collective experience. And Cody argues that we cannot always rely on personal observed generalizations. Mm. This is where the vicious circle is exposed. We can only know what others have observed based on their testimony. So it goes, this rejects the reductionist approach to testimonial transmission and shows that testimony is actually valid and indispensable source of knowledge. Now, by the way, testimony, people's testimony could be totally false. We agree. Just like people's understanding of the empirical world could be false. There is a rich, robust uh, philosophical discourse and debate on the, the, the how do you know what is valid testimonial knowledge? And that's why I mentioned earlier Keith Lehrer, but there are others. Um, and a lot of it is in line with what we said about you know, Ilmul uh, Rijal, the kind of study, the study of men, the biographies of people, the men and the women who are part of the chain of narrations. There's a robust yes. 
kind of theophilosophical um, discussion uh, on ilm al-hadith, on the knowledge of hadith, but we don't need to get into that. But the point here is, I wanted to introduce this book in this way so uh, people appreciate that we have a robust tradition. And not just that, Paul, even concerning the mutawatirat, the, the various mutawatir chains of affirming the Qur'an, because I feel, and I don't know if you agree with this, we have basically fallen for the kind of uh, epistemological trap, especially when it comes to the preservation of the Qur'an. We think we have to have a physical manuscript here and there. But when, when we study the preservation of the Qur'an, it was based on the oral transmission and a physical copy. Absolutely but, right. But, Absolutely. but the oral tra- transmission was actually had epistemic primacy. Yeah. Absolutely. And we have fallen the word itself, the word Quran itself suggests the recitation. That, absolutely. It's not, it's not the recital. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 we need to and we have entered these ridiculous debates yep. for no reason. And yep. I feel if you study testimony properly, yeah, you'll appreciate this. And 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 what I say to people is this: if you reject the preservation of the Quran, it is logically of equivalent of rejecting any known language spoken on earth. And let me explain why. So, Paul. And we're going to talk about love in a moment because of Al-Ghazali's uh, Ihya and his 36 volume, Love, Intimacy and Contentment. Uh, so let's take the word love. How do we, what, wh- where do we get the understanding that the way to pronounce love is love and not love or love e or love or love How do we know we have to pronounce it as love? Hmm. Now, this is what you call a lived oral tradition of how to pronounce words in English. And this exists in any language. Yes, we have dictionaries today that have uh, phonetic representations on how to pronounce certain words if you don't know how to pronounce them, but they were done after the fact, after the kind of lived... They don't oral create the pronunciation, that they, they reflect it. They simply instantiate it in a yes. Already the lived practice of people already. And when the lived practice changes, as it does then the dictionary will be revised and you have a different Absolutely. Uh, phonetic. Now, the beautiful thing is every language has, has this. So no one's going to disagree with the understanding of there is this oral recurrent tradition mm. that we believe to be certainly, certain, we're certain about it. Like we're not going to say, no, you don't, I'm doubtful about how to pronounce the word love. You actually pronounce it love. No one's ever going to say that because it's a mutawatir tradition. It's a recurrent oral lived tradition. Now, I argue to reject the Qur'an, the preservation of the Qur'an is the equivalent of rejecting the pronunciation of words in any known language. Because in Arabic, we have a preserved pronunciation, which is the science of tajweed, the preserved pronunciation of words in the Arabic language. And we have an oral lived tradition throughout the ages that has basically expressed the Qur'an. And that is mutawatir, that is recurrent reporting. So logically yeah. speaking, if you re- reject the lived oral mutawatir recurrent reporting tradition of the Qur'an, it is logically equivalent of rejecting the words you are using and the pronunciation of them in order to reject the Qur'an. This is the tragedy today, as, as you alluded to, the traditional Muslim way of passing on knowledge is you're not just given a book of hadith or uh, a mushraf and go away and study it. No, you have a teacher uh, who who, who uh, inducts you, who talks to you, and yes. and, and, you're, and the and the character of the teacher matters as well. It wasn't just any old dude. It had, you know, a person had to be a person of virtue, not just knowledge. 
and 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 they, they would teach he or she would teach about how to pronounce how to understand they would transmit a tradition a living tradition that from generation to generation and this is the tradition how it works and the danger is now we, we just collapse it into a pdf and that is it and that's our knowledge no it's yeah, not sure. no, no, no it's not in thin, in theory as you as you say and as cody demonstrates or in practice, it's it's simply a dead end. It's a sterile dead end, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, and you know what's interesting, I believe if you go to some North African um, madrasas or masajid, and you ask for you know a Quran, and you you may not have a Quran there. They may send a young child, and they say, "What chapter do you want to read?" And he starts writing the whole chapter. Because some of these uh, these students have learned the Quran not through reading, but through the oral. Uh, lived tradition wow. uh, and this is like a modern manifestation of what i'm just talking about mm. so we believe the quran is preserved as an oral lived tradition there are and so because what is the concept of water the concept is that so many people today have memorized the quran yeah. and these people have never met each other have had different teachers and their chains of knowledge all over the world yeah. throughout the world and those people and different peoples and teachers in the, the chains of transmission have never met each other. Mm. And it's so, it's like a complex web of, of transmission and it all goes back to the Prophet So to claim that the Quran we have today from an oral perspective is, is, not, is not preserved, is tantamount to a massive conspiracy that all of these people yeah. met together, they had the ability to meet, yeah. that they had time machines even, some bizarre, ridiculous stuff. And not only that, if you were to accept such a thing, you have to reject the lived, oral, recurrent tradition of pronunciation, how to pronounce words in any known language. It's interesting. And, we, we, we don't want to go into the, into the biblical thing as a completely different subject, but how, yeah, of how course. different in the Christian tradition this is, that there is no, that this whole thing doesn't exist. That when the Gospels are written or Paul's letters or whatever, that they weren't memorized and handed down with a teacher. That they, 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 they were... Uh, scraps and bits of texts uh, that were were not presumed, uh, preserved reliably. They may be forged, uh, and it was in a, a very different context was the church tradition handed on, mainly through the charisma, the preaching of, of the bishops and so on. But but not the texts yeah, sure. themselves were uh, were not preserved in this mutawata unfalsifiable way at all because obviously Absolutely. if you have a massive transmission it rules out falsification conspiracy yes. uh yes. you're dealing with something that has retained its its integrity but but by virtue of, of that very fact uh and it's, yeah but it's and very it's, different with the, the, the biblical manuscripts is a very very different agreed. Story. and it's important that you we make this point because if we when we compare it to something like language and pronouncing words that people you know uh, you know take for granted every day it brings that point home to them. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. the interesting point about the biblical stuff, not to go on a tangent, you mm. know, Professor Brutz Metzger makes a really good point about the criteria of canonicity. And the criteria of canonicity was basically that the what became canon, the reason it became canon, because I had to agree with early church teachings. For me, I find that a massive kind of circular argument because the whole point of justifying church teachings is, is to have a scripture, but the scripture only becomes scripture and it's canonized because it's in line with church teachings. So there's a bit of a kind of circular argument. It, it, it is to realize that many of these scriptures were not scriptures originally. Like, I don't think Paul thought he was writing scriptures. They yep. became scripture later. That's the key to understanding. So, uh, but, but and you well, know what? Yeah. The Quran was always seen as scripture from the very For moment. Sure. Uh, and it's interesting you say that because a lot of the early church fathers, they didn't even consider some of what is canonized now as actually 
um, uh, divinely inspired or, or, or established canon. And these were the it early church fathers. So, yeah, it took a while. Yeah. Good. So next book, yes. uh, one of my favorites, right? Love. So, Al-Ghazali. So in his Ihya, in his revival of the religious sciences, this 36 volume is on love, intimacy, and contentment with Allah, with God. And mm. the reason I like talking, I did a seminar on this recently. The reason I like talking about this is because the whole point of the Quran is not to give us, you know, kind of theophilosophical arguments and abstraction. It's, it's there to lead us to a very profound conclusion that there is no deity worthy of worship except the deity. And what does worship mean? It means to know God, to recognize him, to accept him as the ultimate truth, mm. to love God, to love Allah, to mm. obey him, to be humble before him, to submit to him, to fear him, and also to single out an, uh, your internal and external acts of worship to Allah alone. So there is very good books on what, how to, uh, what, you know, why Allah is worthy of worship. But I like to zoom in on the love because... Yep. Worship in Islam, ibadah, also includes love, to love Allah. In actual fact, we have a concept which is the shirk of love, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about this in the Quran when he talks about, you know, there are the, 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 the mushrikeen, the polytheists, they love the idols as they should love Allah, right? Mm-hmm. And then Allah talks about that the believers, they love Allah and, you know, you know they, 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 they have a stronger love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the general meaning of the ayah. So here we have a concept of associating partners with God with regards to love. And the idea is that we must love God more than anything, right? Obviously, we could love our parents, our spouses, our brothers, our friends, our community, for sure. But Allah is the one that is worthy of our utmost love. And this is a a, a kind of an expression and manifestation of worship. Now, Al-Ghazali, when he wrote this, he actually his contemporaries kind of attacked him for saying, how, how can you say this kind of transcendent God can love and we can love him? And, yeah. and, and Al-Ghazali actually spent a lot of time in, in, in trying to prove the fact that God is a loving Lord. Like, for example, in his other book, on the 99 Names of God, he talks about Al-Wadud, the loving, coming from the word wood, which means the loving that is giving. Twice, the, the, the name of God is found, the most love is found in the Quran twice, actually. Um, I think it's three times. Is it three times? Make a yeah, three times, yeah. Allah is uh, Al-Wadud, the loving. And Al-Ghazali in his 99 names, he makes a really good point because he compares Al-Wadud to Al-Rahman. He says there is a similarity. Yes, yes. Kind of differences that Al-Rahman is, uh, is more of the one who has power, is being merciful for those who are impoverished mm. and dependent. Mm. Now, al-wudud is, is not necessarily linked to the idea of power. So there was a subtle distinction that he made, but he made a very powerful point as well that al-wudud, Allah being the loving, the most loving, he has the purest form of love. Mm. Because remember, Allah is al-ghani, he is absolutely free. He is samad he is right. independent. Everything depends on him. And when Allah loves, he doesn't need to love and gains nothing by loving, yet he loves in the most maximal way. Imagine how pure that love is. Mm. So for example, take a mother's love. You know, the person said that Allah has more affection for you. He uses the word rahmah here, the, 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 you know, um, uh, uh, loving mercy, than, you, than a mother has for her young ones. Mm. Now, and, and this is so true because a mother, although we could describe a mother's love as sacrificial and unconditional to a certain degree, but really it's, it's conditional from the point of view that it's, it has to be her child, generally speaking. So there's a condition there, I guess. But the point is she needs to love 
it completes her. Allah loves more than a mother. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's to the highest degree possible. It's a transcendent type of love. It's a maximal love. But yeah, he doesn't need to love. It doesn't complete him because he is the absolutely free and the independent. So just imagine how pure God's love is. So Al-Ghazali alludes to the point of God's, the purity of God's love as well. And he has four main arguments in his book concerning, actually, before I do that, he makes a beautiful point about the relationship between knowledge and love, right? Now, this is very interesting, Paul, because Al-Ghazali gave precedence to knowledge over love mm. because he argues in a nutshell, without ilm, without knowledge, there could be no love. How could you love something you don't know? And the more you know something, the more you're going to love it. So he argues that the more knowledge one has about the beloved, the, the stronger the love is going to be. And what's very beautiful about this book, Al-Ghazali sees love not as an emotion. He views it as the highest form of cognition. Because the fruit of knowledge is love. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And that's why Al-Ghazali says in the book, for those endowed with insight, there is in reality no object of love but Allah, but God. Nor does anyone but he deserve love so he he has four main arguments it's called the four causes of love one of them is self-love that that leads to divine love the second one is loving one's benefactor the third one is loving a benefactor without benefiting yourself directly and the last one is loving beauty and goodness so he basically argues look what, what does self-love mean self-love is not this narcissism self-love is what eric Fromm says in his book as well in the art of loving hmm. He talks about this kind of mature love that you want goodness for yourself. Mm-hmm. You, want a, you want well-being and you want to prolong your existence. That's what he really means about self-love. He doesn't mean that, oh, I'm the best. Look at me. <laughs> it means I want goodness for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So Al-Ghazali argues that human beings love the conditions that increase our well-being and our existence. And he argues that, well, if you have this self-love, then you have to love Allah. Because who is the one who created those conditions in the first place in order for you to increase your well-being? And who is the one who's going to increase your, your, your lifespan? It's Allah. And who is in, and, and in the Akhirah, in Jannah, you have an eternal paradise. Allah is the source of all of this. Mm-hmm. And so Al-Ghazali argues, if you love yourself in this way, you don't love Allah, then you're just besotted by your fleshy appetites. He argues, therefore, if man's love for himself be necessary, then this, then his love for him through whom first his coming to be, and second his continuance in his essential being with all his inward and outward traits, his substance and his accidents occur must also be necessary. Whoever is so besotted by his fleshy appetites as to lack this love neglects his Lord and Creator. He possesses no authentic knowledge of Him. His gaze is limited to his cravings and to things of sense. And you can even argue here: Well, who is the source of love? How can you? not love the source of love, right? That means you really haven't experienced true love before. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many, and you can even extend this argument to, well, think about who Allah is. He is Al-Wudud. His love is maximally perfect to the highest degree possible. It's transcendent and it's the most purest form of love. Naturally, wouldn't we want to experience that love in some way? Like if I told you someone were to come into your room and they described as the most loving person that would have ever walked this planet, I don't care, you know, who we are. We're going to, something's going to happen into our, in our hearts. We're going to be compelled to try and understand that love, experience that love, or learn about that love. Similarly, not even similarly, by greater reason, because we can't make uh, analogies with Allah, right? There is 
Nothing like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? We make it, we make a an a fortiori argument, and this is the argument of Al-Ghazali and Ibn, even Ibn Taymiyyah. By greater reason, given that Allah is maximally perfect, his love is to the highest degree possible, and it's a transcendent pure love, then surely we would want to experience that love. Mm. And you know, this is very interesting because Allah says in the Quran to the Prophet, say to the, the Arabs, if you love Allah then follow me, meaning follow Muhammad Sallallahu and Allah will love you and mm. forgive your sins. For, of course, for the Muslim to, to gain that special love is to follow the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's his first argument. The second argument is loving one's benefactor. And this is the kind of second cause of love for Al-Ghazali. So he, he argues, well, naturally, we love, one's be- we, love someone, we, we love people, right? If they give us some kind of benefits, if they give us gifts, if they increase our well-being, if they help us. And over time, we're going to have an, a natural inclination towards that person. We're going to have an affinity towards that person. And, and those gifts are not only physical gifts. They could be, you know, verbal. It could be like a word of affirmation. It could be acts of service, you know, echoing the, the book, The Five Love Languages, whatever the case may be. You're benefiting someone in some way. And if there is a continual kind of, uh, uh, a continuation of that benefit, you're going to have a natural inclination for them. Now, Al-Ghazali makes a beautiful argument. It's quite simple, but it's profound. He says, well, who is the source of all our blessings? Who is the source of all the benefits? Who created the benefactor that you experience in your life? Who created all the blessings and the benefits that you experience in your life? Who is the source of all of these pleasures? It is Allah, right? In actual fact, we can't even be grateful for these blessings, and so Al-Ghazali argues, if you're going to have a natural inclination of love for your benefactor, well, what about the greatest benefactor who is Allah? Because Allah is the greatest benefactor. His name is Al-Bar, the greatest benefactor. And interestingly, Allah says in the Quran, in ch- chapter 14, verse 34, and if you, should, if you should try to count the favors of Allah, you could not enumerate them. Indeed, mankind is generally most unjust and ungrateful. And Paul, look, let me give you a little bit of a thought experiment. Imagine... Like, without any strings attached, I gave you 10 million pounds, right? And I said to you, if you lose it, I'll give you another 10 million pounds. No strings attached. Do what you want. Like, in, in a normal context, how would you respond? How would you feel? What would be your feeling? Well, I'd be very grateful indeed. Yeah. And you would, would you be ecstatic? Ecstatic, yeah. 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 You, you have a, a, a grateful ecstasy, Yeah. <laughs> I'll be dumbfounded and speechless, but yes, that, yeah, that would probably yeah, be... Good. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, I'll give, me, I'll give you another scenario. Say I give you the same 10 million pounds. I say, if you lose it, I'll give you another 10 million pounds. But the minute you accept it, you can't wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to die. Are you going to take the million pounds, 10 million pounds? Wow. Yeah, of course not. No. No. Okay, good. So, and this is not just about you, this is about me, mostly. So why aren't we as grateful and ecstatic every time we wake up in the morning? Mm-hmm. given the fact that we would reject 10 million pounds mm-hmm. if we couldn't wake up in the morning by accepting it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the point I'm trying to raise here is Allah gives us every conscious moment of our existence that we don't earn, own, or deserve, and it's freely given to us and it's priceless. We're not the source of life. We cannot create life. We don't earn, or, or, we don't earn own, or deserve it, yet it's freely given to us and it's priceless. Because if I said, you know, you only have 10 moments left to live, but to get another 10,000 moments, you have to give me all of your wealth, you would give me all of your wealth. So the point here is, uh, uh, the argument that the Quran is trying to give us is, well, you can't even be thankful for every 
conscious moment you have in your, in your existence. Take all the seconds you've had in your life thus far. Can you enumerate them individually? Can you count them individually? It's actually practically impossible because for the first two or three years, you can't count. When you're sleeping, you can't count. Now, change it a bit. Can you be individually grateful for every single second you've had in your life? Every conscious moment. It's actually practically impossible. And that's one blessing, your conscious moments. What about what you experience in those moments? Mm. And so the argument the Quran gives us is quite profound. And it's good to remind us about this because true gratitude is to be grateful about these things. We take our heartbeats for granted, for example. You know, if I said you got 100 heartbeats left, but to get another 10,000 heartbeats, you have to give me all of your wealth, you give me all of your wealth. Mm. But we can't enumerate each of the heartbeats we've had in a lifetime, it's practically impossible. And we can't even be individually grateful. Say Alhamdulillah every time you had a heartbeat. Mm. You got a backlog first two years, right? Because you can't speak. You can't, you got a backlog because you're sleeping. And that's just one blessing. And that's why I tell my family sometimes anything above a heartbeat is a bonus. If we truly internalize that, then we'll be a little bit more content and we'll, you know, you know, if we lose a house or a job it won't be the biggest thing, right? Obviously, these are, these are traumas as well, but mm. you know, we have to see things from that perspective. So, so Ali Ghazali is basically saying that, look, Allah is the greatest benefactor. He created all of the benefactors that give you benefits. He created all the benefits and the pleasures that you have. And in actual fact, you can even be, enumerate them, enumerate the basic blessings that you have, like your life, your conscious moments and your heartbeat. And you could even be individually grateful for every conscious moment you had in your existence. Mm-hmm. So, and, and if we naturally have an inclination towards uh, uh, one's, uh, our benefactors, then what about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is the greatest benefactor? So that's his third cause. The, the, so the second cause. The third cause is loving a benefactor without benefiting. And this is interesting. So he, so he Ghazali argues that we naturally like people, we have a natural inclination towards people. If we hear good about them, that they're good people. So I'm just about to get my charger for, for this. Uh, they're good people, they benefit other people, um, they have um, a great character, you know, they, they support other people and so on and so forth. When that happens, you know, um, we, we naturally have an inclination for them. So we naturally love people of goodness and we love benefactors without even experiencing or directly benefiting from them ourselves. So in other words, we naturally love people who do good and benefit others. Now, Al-Ghazali makes a similar argument to the previous one is, well, who is the greatest benefactor? And obviously we've mentioned some, some examples already. Allah is al-Baqir. He is the source of all goodness. He's the greatest benefactor. As Allah says in the Quran in chapter 52, verse 28, he is al-Baqir. He is the good, the merciful one, or the greatest benefactor. The final fourth argument that Al-Ghazali argues in terms of why we should have Allah, uh, we should love Allah the most is, and this is a beautiful one. He talks about uh, loving beauty and goodness. So Al-Ghazali argues that Allah is a source of all goodness and beauty. He, and, and since we love beauty and goodness, then we should love Allah because he is the source of all goodness and beauty. Like if you look at natural beauty, for example, you know, state of awe. And by the way, interesting studies have shown when you reflect on natural beauty, it increases your awe. And when you increase your awe, it decreases your ego. You become more humble and it increases your cognitive faculties. Yeah. And that's very interesting because uh, uh, using your brain, your aql, your intellect, and not having arrogance are keys to guidance. Mm. Not using your intellect 
and actually being arrogant are barriers to divine guidance. You close the door to Allah's mercy and guidance, which is very interesting. And that's why Allah talks a lot about reflecting on nature. But anyway, so the point here is, Al-Ghazali argues, if you love beauty and goodness, then what about the one who created beauty and goodness? It's the source of beauty and goodness. Mm. But there's also another argument, because in the hadith, in the authentic hadith, the Prophet said, Verily, Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. So obviously from here, we have an understanding that there is an objective understanding of beauty. So because you can't say Allah's beauty is subjective. But the point here is Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. And he's the most beautiful from that perspective, obviously in a transcendent sense. Also, as we said in the verse, pre, uh, the verse that we mentioned before, chapter 52, verse 28, Allah is al-bar. He is the greatest benefactor. He is the good. He is the source of all goodness, the merciful one. So Allah is the source of all goodness. Allah is the beautiful, right? He's beautiful and he loves beauty. And Allah is the source of all goodness and beauty. So if you love beauty and goodness, then you should have that natural inclination towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You should love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that was Al-Ghazali's four kind of causes of love and how to use them in order to under, to internalize and actualize that we must love Allah the most. And as I, said, I, 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 will, I will put links to uh, these books in the description below if people want to uh, read these uh, amazing works uh, for themselves. Thank you, Hamza. Good. So we have now, um, I realize we've, we've, we've gone through a lot, but uh, interestingly, we have uh, Dr. Osman Atif's book, recent book, Divine Perfection, Christianity and Islam on Sin and Salvation. Now, which I actually, which I actually have, by the way. So. Brilliant, brilliant. Also, I actually bought it. So uh, good, thank uh, you. Sapiens Publishing, which of course is your, your, yes. your organization. So, the, you know, this all started by when we analyzed the kind of arguments of Dr. William Craig against the Islamic tradition. And Al Ghazali, he basically, sorry, um, uh, Dr. William Craig, he basically has this kind of argument against the concept of God in the Islamic tradition. Mm. He believes it's, it's morally inadequate because God is not maximally loving. He's not perfectly loving. He's not uh, loving like the, the God of the Bible. And I always felt that this was a very problematic argument. And generally speaking, when I saw some of the debates or read, read some of the transcripts and saw some of the arguments, I felt that the Muslim community didn't do as a good job as we should have. And I felt that we needed to basically elevate the discourse slightly. And for me, I felt that Dr. William Craig was basically totally wrong. It was a massive straw man of the Islamic tradition. Because mm. as you know, we've discussed this just a few minutes ago, Allah is al-Wadud, he is the most loving. His, his love is maximal, it's the purest form of love. And it's actually real. From the point of view that it makes sense because in order to be maximally loving, you have to be maximally forgiving because forgiveness is an expression of love. And what this book does, it does many things, but what this book actually does is it, it talks about what Dr. Usman Latif coins as the Adamic conundrum. He said, let's start from the beginning. How can you say that God is not loving in the Islamic tradition? And, and the concept of God in the biblical tradition is, 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 is morally adequate and the Islamic concept is morally inadequate. Well, let's unpack this with the Adamic conundrum. So the Adamic conundrum, as you know, you're more well-versed in the Christian tradition than, than I am. But basically, you know, you know, Adam and his wife, they sin and it's a fall from grace, right? And this fall from grace is because, you know, sin, the wages of sin is death. 
And there cannot be a kind of direct forgiveness from the point of view between the creator and his servants based on their relationship. There must be something external to that, such as a blood sacrifice in order for to, to, to redeem uh, humanity. Oh, the, now, the, this, by the way, just uh, is an important thing I want to stress here. What you're saying is actually all very true. Yes. But it's the Christian understanding of Genesis, of Adam. and Yeah, for sure. Sorry. Yes, not, oh, absolutely. It's not, it's not the Jewish understanding. The, the story is a Jewish story in the Jewish Bible, in the Jewish book of Genesis. That's absolutely not how they understand it at all. But you, you're not making that point. You're making a, a point about William Lane Craig and Christianity, of course. Yes. But the Christian one is very alien to the Jewish. Now, if you look at that, the Jewish study Bible and you read the commentary on uh, on this passage, it's a completely different narrative uh, sure. and, and, and has none of the, the problematic features that you're going to discuss. So you're absolutely right. But I just want to say that's not the only reading in the Judeo-Christian tradition. There's a Jewish reading, which is very different from William Lane Craig's reading. Yeah, thank you for that. So, um, yeah, so that's essentially the reading. So there is a bit of a problem here. So the, the few problems are, well, it seems to me that God's holiness in the Christian tradition takes precedence over his forgiveness. Because God is supposed to be so holy that human sin, by the way, he created human beings and he should know that they're weak and he should know that they're going to commit sin as well. But God is so holy that even that little problem, yes. <laughs> yeah, even even though God knows that they're weak and they're gonna they're gonna fall short, yeah. He he can't forgive them directly. There has to be this kind of you know a blood sacrifice, an external thing happening external to the relationship between the creator and his servants. And that for me is quite bizarre because in a way, the logic of it is that it humanizes God or it deifies man, right? And that's the problem with that kind of narrative. Now, the point here is to understand that God is not maximally forgiving just based on this, what Dr. Manatif coins as the Adamic conundrum. But when you look at the Islamic perspective, Allah doesn't even call it a fall from grace. He calls it a slip. Not only this, and this is so beautiful, this is so beautiful. Allah talks about this slip. He knew. See, Allah is qareeb. He's close. And Allah is majestic. And al-Qudus, the holy. But human sin doesn't limit his mercy and his majesty and holiness. In actual fact, Allah makes this clear. If you don't worship him, it's not going to you know, decrease in his majesty and his bounty. And if you worship him, it's not going to increase in his majesty and bounty. Such, such is the holiness and majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not affected by human beings, right? And that's why I said earlier, the kind of Christian narrative is either it humanizes God or it deifies man because he has the effect on God in that way. But anyway, the point here is, look how Allah responds to them. In actual fact, they didn't seek forgiveness first. What does Allah say? Allah turns to them, right? Allah relents to them yeah and allah says in the quran chapter 2 verse 37 then adam was inspired with words of prayer by his lord mm. and he accepted his repentance surely he's the acceptor repentance the most merciful and we know what these words were in chapter 7 verse 23 they replied our lord we have wronged our souls if you do not forgive us and have mercy we should be lost and allah forgave so look at the paradigm here we see a maximal form of forgiveness that adam didn't turn to god to ask for forgiveness in actual fact allah turned to them taught them the words 
they repeated those words and they were forgiven. So I, I like to give these two, uh, not analogies because we don't make analogies, but we could, it's like an a fortiori argument of two kings, right? One king, he has this castle and he has a servant. The servant makes a mistake. And basically the servant comes up to the king and says, please forgive me. The king says, I can't forgive you. The only way I can forgive you is that I have to kill my son. And you have to accept that that's, that, that's enough for your forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Not only is the act itself going to happen, but you have to accept the act happening, yeah? Now, consider the second scenario. A servant breaks a plate or something, makes a mistake, goes to the king. Actually, doesn't even go to the king. The king understands this, realizes this, f- tries to find the servant. It says, I know what you've done. Don't worry. Just say these words and we can reconnect and you're, you're part of the team. What is more maximally forgiving? Well, what was striking about your analogy, uh, uh, Hamza, is that um, it reminds me of an analogy from someone else, from Jesus, uh, upon him be peace, uh, in, in a famous parable called the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, which is exactly what you've just said. Uh, instead of a king, you've got a father. And, uh, and so the, the son goes away, commits lots of sins. The, the father welcomes him back. No sacrifice is required. No blood sacrifice atonement is required at all. God is forgiving. He's loving. So the, the irony here is, and this is one of the great ironies of world history, in my view, is that the Christian, the traditional Christian understanding, and there are actually many variants to it, and there is yeah, nuance sure. here, which we're not really doing justice to. There's a difference, for example, between the Irenaean understanding and the Augustinian one, and, and this is something one, one learns when one studies historical theology, but we're parking all that nuance on one side. Um, um, the great ironies of world history is that Jesus, in my view, is Jesus' understanding of salvation is now to be much better found in part of living faith in the in the Muslim community than it is in Islam in Christian theology. Wow, uh, that's a very deep point. And, and, yeah, and the, Jesus is, um, in some sense, expressing um, an Islamic understanding of salvation. Um, and this is not my brilliant insight. This has been noted by people like well, other scholars. Um, but um, so w- what you're expressing is of Islamic view, but it's also the the understanding, as far as we know, of Jesus Himself. Sure. And, and this is the continuity between Jesus and Muhammad. And how amazing is that, says everyone, apart from Muslims, of course, who say, well, of course, there's continuity because they're both messengers of prophets of God. And they're, they're basically bringing the same message in different contexts. Absolutely. Beautifully said. So there's a lot to the book. It goes through the different theories of atonement. It mm. goes through uh, the understanding of Allah's name, Al-Wadud, Al-Rahman. It goes to all of these nuances as well, and especially the nuances of the Christian tradition. But it namely attacks the kind of Dr. William Lane, Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig's arguments against yeah. Islamic tradition, which also includes the conception of the Trinity and so on and so forth. But I just wanted to focus because it linked to the previous topic about love on the Adamic conundrum, because how can you claim someone or an entity to be maximally loving when they're not maximally forgiving because uh, to be maximally loving it entails maximal forgiveness mm-hmm. and so from that perspective just based on this adamic conundrum the whole kind of narrative of that you know the concept of god in the christian tradition is morally adequate and the the, yeah. the one in the islamic tradition is morally inadequate totally fails just by understanding the adamic conundrum um, but there's much more to the book, different theories of atonement, yes. the different other yes. arguments against uh, William, uh, that William M. Craig poses against um, 
the Islamic and the, Jewish understanding by the traditional Jewish understanding is very similar to the Islamic understanding of the story of Adam as well. So in one sense, uh, the Christian understanding that's been mentioned here, although it's not, there are other understandings, is the odd one out in terms of the Abrahamic. Yeah, it's, it's, a, diver it's a diversion from the kind of monotheistic uh, perennial truth that, you know, uh, this, this, you know, the exactly we, we believe that you know the the Christian and the Jewish tradition were revealed truths, and obviously they were distorted over time, and so on and so forth. But you're going to have elements of that, and you see that look, there is a, a kind of aberration here. There is a deviation from this from this narrative, which which is telling. But yeah, so I thought I'd introduce his book from that perspective because it's very powerful. Because seldom do we talk about Allah's love in this way. Mm. When we talk to Christians, sometimes it's very academic, bro. It's very. Oh, no, no, I did. I had a conversation at Speaker's Corner with a Christian missionary. Oh, brilliant! Day, and he kept on saying, "God must punish sin. Uh, it's not, it's got, God is just, so He must punish sin." So I asked him. I said a corny question. I know, but I did. I said, "Are you a father? Do you have children?" You know, corny question. He admitted that he did have children. Well, do you always punish them every time they do something wrong? Do you insist on being just every time? No, I don't. Well, you're not being just then. Well, no, I am being just. Okay, so, so what are you being? You're being forgiving. You're showing mercy. You're showing compassion. So you're not compelled always like a machine to say, justice, 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 I must punish, punish. No, you show mercy and forgiveness and compassion. As the same with God. This is the corny analogy anyway, but uh, that God is not compelled always to punish sinners. If you have a a repentant, humble person, God can and, um, and will, uh, according to his wisdom, forgive people. Yes, but absolutely. A, a stubborn, unrepentant sinner, he, he may well, in his wisdom, choose to punish them. So he can do as he wishes. But in, in his Christian paradigm, God was compelled always to punish and therefore had to punish Jesus. Otherwise, we're not saved. And I thought that was a, a robotic, mechanistic, profoundly unloving uncompassionate conception of god and unfortunately it's very common amongst a particular kind of evangelical yes. uh, missionary work and and muslims i think are pretty immune to it i've not come across any muslims who think oh well maybe god has this robotic need to punish people all the time and he has to kill his son wow maybe i believe in that religion as well rather than the religion of a god of rahman a god of mercy and god of absolutely but no that, one ever converts yeah, to that that narrative needs to be the main narrative because sometimes I think, I think we get lost in kind of intellectual apologetics with the christians and even you know about preservation of 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 the bible or even aspects of the trinity uh or yeah. you know the historicity of the of, or the textual integrity integrity of the text which is all fine and well but i think we should really like make this the main point because oh. this is this is the main point our lord is a loving lord their lord is a loving lord allah uh, the creator of the heavens and earth is a loving lord it, human sin doesn't impact or affect his forgiveness and mercy. He's holy and majestic um, he, in a transcendent way. Allah is Al-Wudud, the most loving, Al-Rahman, the intensely merciful, the lovingly merciful. He's Al-Rahim, he's the specially merciful. This is your Lord. And, you know, in actual fact, the whole Christian or the Dr. William Craig's narrative, it diminishes the maximal love of God. And it diminishes the maximum justice of God because, you know, God, according to Christian tradition, has to basically punish someone who didn't even do the sin. He's not to blame. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I ought to put the caveat here because uh, there's danger here of misrepresenting Christianity. Christianity, in my view, is not a religion like is it is it is multiple. Uh, in fact, Professor uh, Keith Ward, uh, Regent Professor of Divinity at Oxford, who's probably Britain's most preeminent Christian theologian, said this to me 
himself. He said the, the, the label Christian is there, but then in reality, there are multiple Christianities. They all, mm. they all may point to Jesus, but what one set of Christians believe by Jesus and what he did is very different for another group of people uh, okay. within the very, same very, religion. Very, very, very different. So we're dealing with multiple Christianities. Yes. And there's the strain that this book is criticizing, William Lane Craig, uh, is certainly a very popular one. But there are other equally significant ones that don't have that problem uh, that, that would agree. And, and I know they exist because one can read about them that would sure. agree with Islamic criticism of, of this kind of and they see it as cruel and barbaric. And yes. God. that's, a, that's and a, been a constant theme in Christian theology, dialoguing about this. But there was the Willingham cake is a very prominent uh, Christian apologist, obviously probably the most prominent in the world in the West, I mean. So he, he certainly deserves to be engaged in the way. That's that's uh, a fantastic point. And that's why it's very important to know that the book itself zooms in on just the kind of yep. Dr. William Craig and his teachers oh, and yeah. his teachers, teachers, even going back to Thomas of Aquinas and John of Damascus, because they had very similar um, inaccurate views and kind of uh, false misrepresentations of, of Islam. And it's mentioned in the book itself. Yes. Um, and yeah, so you're right. Uh, I totally agree with that point. So yeah, so hopefully that's uh, unpacked some of the content of mm. that book. The second book, so we've got two more, we could quickly go through them. Yep. Um, the second book is basically coercion by the political scientist and philosopher, Alan Wertheimer. Now, the reason I felt this book was very important is because this book created a paradigm shift on the kind of understanding of what coercion is. Mm. Now, why am I mentioning this? Is because so I'm going to try to unpack this as best as possible. So, although the book talks about kind of practical legal uh, realities in the American legal system concerning coercion, all of these kind of legal nuances, for me, what this book gives us is a a kind of philosophy of coercion. And the reason it's important to understand a kind of robust philosophy of co coercion is because it helps us in understanding freedom because you know living in the west living in britain and you know being in kind of secular liberal democracies you have this idea of freedom bouncing around all the time and you have this accusation sometimes you know against religion against islamic uh, law that islam curtails freedom but the way to unpack this is to say well hold on a second what do you mean by freedom well, if freedom is the absence of coercion, well, what is coercion? Some people think coercion means I'm being forced. Well, that's not a very nuanced understanding what coercion is. So what the political philosopher Alan Whitehammer argues is, you know, you could call it like an empirical account, if you want to term it that, of coercion, because there have been others that have or other accounts of coercion, like um, her name was, I forgot her name now, Sol, Sol Riati. I forgot her name. I'll have to catch her name. Uh, if I remember, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. But she had a different kind of uh, 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 notion of coercion. But uh, Whitehammer's uh, notion of coercion is that it's not about having unfavorable circumstances. For example, you have a set of options and the only option you can take is the most unfavorable that doesn't necessarily mean that you are actually uh, coerced in the in the understanding that we have in a in a in a in a, in a popular way, and and Whitehammer even argues that this is almost irrelevant. So he has a kind of virtual ethical understanding of this or context based understanding. You have to understand 
the context. And so what he argue, argues is what matters is really uh, the, that is whether or not the proposal or the options that they have is an infringement of one's rights, of one's rights. And this is very critical to the discussion of freedom and religion. Yeah? So his argument of coercion is not that made that you just have, you know, alternatives that are unreasonable. No, you may have a set of options that are, and, and the option that you can only take or the options that you can only take are un, unreasonable, unfavorable. That doesn't mean you're being coerced. And he says, you have to understand the context. And the main context is that it should not be an infringement of your right. So to unpack this, you know, he, he, I think, yeah, he gives the example of a patient that has to undergo life-saving surgery. Yeah? So imagine medical staff propose that the patient has to go surgery to ensure the survival. If they don't have the surgery, they're going to die. So they have two options. They take the surgery, they survive. They don't take the surgery, they're going to die. So one of the options is extremely unfavorable. And in actual fact, it's so unfavorable that they're coerced to take the other option, which is the first option, which is to undergo the surgery. So one would argue, look, they're forced because they, the other option is extremely unfavorable. But he argues this is not coercion. Yeah? This, is not, this is not being forced to do something in an unethical and immoral way. Uh, and, and why? Because, you know, if the patient... Uh, uh, he signs the, uh, the consent form and he feels coerced because the only option he has is to consent for the surgery because the alternative is that he's going to die. This, this doesn't mean that they've been forced in an unethical way because if you understand it in the context, in the rights-based approach, this whole problem is solved. You can't say they're coerced in an unethical way because even though the patient has no other reasonable option other than to sign the consent form to take the surgery, he still does so without being coerced in an, in, an, in an unethical way. Because if the surgeon were to operate without consent, then that would be tantamount to physical assault or, or abuse. So from this example and many similar ones, it's about rights. Has that person's right now, ha have their rights been violated? This is how you really unpack the idea of coercion and therefore the idea of freedom. If that's the case, and by the way, this is a very quick summary, but if that's the case, then you could develop the following logic. Number one, freedom is the absence of coercion. Number two, the absence of coercion is, is when rights are not violated. Number three, therefore freedom is when rights are not violated. And this is actually, uh, in analytical philosophy, what is called the idea of freedom. We're not talking about political science, we're talking about the idea itself of freedom. So if the idea of freedom itself is when rights are not violated, then we need to raise a question. What conception of rights? And if you have a different conception, you're having a different understanding of freedom. Libertarian conception, the positive view of rights, which, could be, which is more in line with the socialist view, or the Islamic understanding of rights. And who has the right to give you your rights, mm -hmm. right? So when someone says, oh, Islam can tell us freedom, it's anti-freedom, and because this is a very, this word has a lot of connotations, has a lot of emotion behind it. And to say that someone is anti-free, you're, you're assuming that they're enslaving people and they're oppressing people. So the way to unpack this is, well, what do you mean by freedom? It's the absence of coercion. What is coercion? Well, when you unpack some of these sort of experiments, coercion is really when your rights have not been violated. Well, if it's the case that freedom is the absence of coercion, and the absence of coercion is when rights have not been violated, 
and therefore freedom is when rights are not violated, then we should raise the question, what rights? Whose conception of rights? Right. Yeah, and exactly. from an Islamic perspective, we believe that, you know, even in, in, in fiqh, we have this concept of hukuq al-ibad, the rights of the servant, the rights of the individuals. We have understanding of rights and responsibilities um, and so on and so forth, but they're defined from the source text, from the moral basis of Islam, which is the Quran and the prophetic way and yeah. understanding it's, of it's, I always find this discourse profoundly unsatisfying because we can talk about rights, the nature of freedom and so on, but there's always within a secular paradigm. And yes. no one ever says, no one ever talks about the rights of God. Now, why does God have rights over us? Well, God made us with a purpose uh, and a will. And the rights of God are ignored in this kind of secular discourse. Right? It's profoundly unsatisfying and traditional catholic actually you know, discourse on ethics recognized this problem and, and said we must talk about the rights of god first um but, but that's no longer the case in the west today unfortunately absolutely and that's why when, when you develop this kind of logic or this discourse you bring it back to the understanding of islamic rights and within that is involves the rights of allah the rights of your neighbor the rights of the individual the rights upon yourself yep. the rights of others and all of these are defined in the, 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 that's why what you say is helpful because we've got to step out of this paradigm, this box, and there's actually another paradigm. We're, yes. we're not going to operate from your assumptions here about individual liberty and the right to choose to have an abortion. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, we're going to step into our paradigm. So you rewrite the map and say, no, actually, this is a better paradigm, a better map, because it accords with multidimensional considerations from God to our, our rights, the rights of animals. And the rights of God, and and this is a much more holistic and theologically uh, theocentric understanding of rights, and and it, of course it fits with the the fitra as well, which is our natural disposition to yeah the natural inclination. Uh, so it's a much more um, wholesome, uh, very yeah. explanation. And the, and the reason, and, the, and I've written about this as well, an essay on this. And the reason I I want to do this as well, one of the motivations is because a lot of our brothers and sisters, when they engage in political discourse, they actually assume the kind of ideological framework. Yeah the secular neoliberal framework, Absolutely. and they use words like freedom, yes. uh, even yes. things like human rights, individual rights. Yes. But but all of this has metaphysical and epistemological baggage. Sorry, and sorry. they and they, and they they adopt false uh, epistemological and metaphysical assumptions. And, and, yep. and with this whole thing of coercion really makes you to understand, well, freedom is really about rights. And then it allows you now to enter into, enter, uh, 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 to, to use the Islamic worldview as part of that discourse now saying, well, I could now ask the question, well, if re freedom is all about rights, then then who has the right to give you your rights? Who is the source of our rights? What conception of rights? What are the priority of these rights? Yeah. If there's any conflict of rights, what takes private precedence? What is the hierarchy of rights? And all of this comes from Islam. And you, if you show the Islamic basis to be true, then whatever, whatever Allah and the Sunnah says about rights, is going to be true because whatever comes from truth is true. And then you give people a different lens, a different paradigm to understand the world. And therefore the accusation that Islam is oppressive or contains freedom is just based on, you know, secular neoliberal uh, 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 baggage. And yeah. when you unpack it in this way, you can really empower people. Um, so finally, I agree. Yeah. Uh, sorry, there was too many books here. So finally, there's so, uh, so much to say. And you know what? Maybe in the in the future we could take one of these concepts and unpack them because there's so much, and I just always feel sometimes just I feel like it's a disservice that 
we have to go through things quickly and through. No, wait, wait, but, but you're giving a taste of these books. So yes, really, that's the point. So I want, yeah, people can I want, actually follow the journey themselves. Good, it's not good. the terminus. It's the beginning of the Thank journey. That's, that's the point I want to reiterate. We're planting seeds here. Let those seeds grow. Continue yeah. your journey. Hopefully we've inspired you to unpack this further. So that's finally, why, that's why I wanted you as a guest to precisely initiate the journey for these books. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So finally, it's again, another book by Dr. Sosmanity, which is on being human. And why have I chosen this? Because this relates to international relations and sociology. And there's a lot in this book that we could learn about the prophetic character, about uh, the Islamic worldview, about understanding different groups of people, about understanding different religions, understanding so many different concepts. And uh, Dr. Smile Latif is a postdoctoral researcher in othering and dehumanization. He's been published by Brill and Springer. He's one of our gems in our community, an academic in this field, a leader in this field. Brill, and, by the way, is one of the leading academic publishers in the world. So if you're published by yeah. them, you're, you're being, you're, you are the upper echelons of the academic. Absolutely, world. absolutely. And so what, what Dr. Smile Latif talks about in this book is he talks about othering, dehumanization, empathy from an Islamic perspective. Mm. So the main argument is that when you otherize or you, you, the othering uh, happens and dehumanization happens, that, that leads to kind of extremism and violence and genocide. And he uses examples of Rwanda, of what happened in Bosnia, and of course in Nazi Germany. So what is othering? Othering is not basically saying that, that there is another group. But othering is saying that there is another group and every member of that group is a monolith. They're all the same and they have negative characteristics. Yeah? yeah, That's what othering is. And dehumanization is is removing the humanity and the value and dignity from uh, an individual. So what he argues is that a lot of these ideologies, like you know, uh, what happened in Nazi Germany and what happened in Bosnia and Rwanda. You know, India at the moment, by the way. Uh, Absolutely. It's not purely an historical phenomenon, unfortunately. It's happening, uh, the otherization of a whole group of people uh, and, the, and their collective uh, um, uh, persecution uh, is happening. Absolutely, to- absolutely. And that's why I'm just getting my charger, sorry. And that's why it's very important for us to raise these issues and to show that in actual fact, you know, sometimes when people hide behind freedom of speech, it's just the excuse to want to otherize and dehumanize others. And there's a clear link between othering, dehumanization, and actually violence and genocide. And this is something that Dr. Smilatif talks about. And when and what he does, he actually gives an Islamic paradigm. So he appreciates the orthodoxy of the, you know, the, ortho, uh, the normative Islam and says, yes, Allah does talk about other groups like um, the, 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 the mushrikeen, the mujrimeen, the criminals, the, the, the munafiqeen, the, the hypocrites, and so on and so forth. But he makes a very interesting point. And what I'm gathering from what he's saying is that these are distinctions, the important distinctions to make because a believer needs to understand what is moral, what is not moral. And fi- fundamentally, you need to understand these labels, not as using them to judge entire groups of people, but rather, first and foremost, to internalize yourself. Am I like the pharaoh, for example, do I have pharaonic elements in my heart? Am I one of the criminals? Am I one of the hypocrites? Because, you know, we can't see into people's hearts. So, but there are these groups of people, but that's not, that's not a case of othering because what does Allah say? When the Quran does talk about groups of people like the Christians, the Jews, there's always a a party of the Christians or some of the Jews. Beautiful point. I was about to, yes. They never sort of totalize them. The Jews in totality, it's always carefully qualified. 
Yeah. Sorry, Beautiful point. And that's the point that Dr. Usman Latif makes based on Surah, Surah, Surah Al-Imran, uh, chapter 3, verse 113. When Allah says, people are not the same. And when you look at the Mufassirin, the classical exegetes of this verse, even talks about you know the, the, the Jews and the, there's upright people of the Jews and the Christians. Yeah. So Allah is teaching us not to otherize. Mm. Right? Yes, we have groups and categories of people with certain characteristics, but that is for us to make moral distinctions and for us to internalize to see if we have these. And when Allah specifically talks about specific groups of people, it's a group of or a party of that these kind of, uh, uh, what was the word that you used? These qualifications made. And Allah tells us specifically people are not the same. Mm. So it's not othering from what we defined earlier, which is there is another group and every single member of the group is all yeah. evil. That's mm. not the case. Mm. So that's one point to make. The other point to make is, is when he goes through the prophetic empathy, which is phenomenal, because he argues, the pro, uh, uh, Dr. Osman Latif argues that we need to revive prophetic empathy in order to, for it to become a barrier against othering and dehumanization. Because when you look at the prophetic character, when you look at the sunnah of individual interaction, he individualized people. So even if a Jew or a Christian or anyone came to him, he wouldn't otherize them and say, right, you belong to this group and this group is all evil. No, he would deal with them as an individual with the individual context. And that's the first step of empathy is to individualize them. What, I, what I, I, think, I think part of the problem, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right, of course. The, the danger here is, and I, I won't get too specific, because I don't want to, that there is a certain nation in the Middle East, shall we say, that uh, through repeated egregious acts towards Muslims and others is, is, is storing up quite possibly a whirlwind uh, of retribution one day. And the danger in that is that there will be a total otherizing of this group of people. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say here you can see what i'm talking about but that their repeated disenfranchisement and persecution of of groups in certain occupied lands and the, the anger that has built built up and is stored up will and is resulting in the otherization of a group of people um however understandable will lead to terrible consequences uh and we're going to see a repetition maybe of you know, you know what i mean so what you're saying is very prescient and very relevant but i, I fear that given the emotions involved that people will deem it, you know, the, the w w when the tables do turn, if they do turn, the retribution will be horrible because there will be so much yeah. anger at these I mean, people. And, well, and this, I, is, this is a real problem that we, you know, it, because we're so angry at this powerful group, but actually when they're no longer powerful or, or the tables are turned, what happens then? And well, the, the we have to follow people, divine guidance. Yeah. We have to follow divine guidance because yeah. Look at the Prophet Sallam when uh, the the peaceful conquest of Mecca, where there was a general kind of you know amnesty and a forgiveness, and the Prophet said, "This is a day of 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 rahmah. It's a day of forgiveness from that perspective." And you know, some people wanted revenge, and the Prophet said, yeah. "No, it's not revenge, even though he was oh, persecuted and so on and so forth." Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and we need to follow the. This is why the prophetic empathy is so significant. The prophetic practice is so significant here, because you know we are not like our enemies, right? We, we, we don't have the same teachers. Well, our teacher is our Rahman, the merciful. Our teacher is, is, is the Prophet who is described as a mercy to, to all the worlds. And this is why it's important to talk about othering, dehumanization, and also the prophetic approach as a barrier against othering and dehumanization. There are some really powerful examples that Dr. Usman Latif talks about. For example, he talks about you know, the example of Julie Beeb. 
which is a, a very famous story. Or you know, he was seen almost like like an outcast because of the way that he looked. Okay, um, and you know. Julebib didn't have any tribal connections in Medina. He didn't, he didn't even have a wife. But the Prophet understood that he was being, to a certain degree, almost you know his his human value was being diminished by virtue of the way he looked and because he had no lineage. And that was very important, of course, for the Arabs. And so, what did what did Prophet look at the way the Prophet related to him as an individual? Mm-hmm. He basically got him married. He took active steps to take to get Julebib married, and obviously. Um, you know, uh, Julebib, may Allah have mercy on him, may Allah, may Allah be pleased with him, he basically became martyred in one of the battles. And the Prophet said, this man is from me and I am from him. Mm. Now the scholar An-Nawawi, he said in his commentary of Sahih Muslim, this was like a mubalagha, a, a, a hyperbolic way of showing the importance of Julebib. Mm. So the individual, the, 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 those who were, disenfranchised if you like or the fringes of society those who were not accepted or valued to that degree the way the person related to them was that he elevated them that he that he got the best out of them he got him married he praised him he brought him into the community he said he's he this man is from me and i am from him so these are very very important points to to take with regards to the way the person related to individuals because i have this kind of thing in leadership the way you relate is what you create Meaning you should relate to people sincerely in a way that you're talking to the best version of who they are and your linguistic utterances and your behavior is such that you're talking to the best optimal version of that person, even if they're not showing that. And once you do that, you get the best out of them. And this is a prophetic practice. Again, you have the example of Um Fulan. So uh, the the uh, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, it was uh, 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 narrated on the authority of Anas, uh, anna, a woman, somewhat mentally unwell, said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, I have a need that I want you to meet. And he responded, Ya Um Fulan, Oh, Mother of so-and-so, choose the way you like to walk in so that I may know your need and meet it. He walked with her in some route until she had her need fulfilled. And this is very important. What does Dr. Smilatif say here? He says, this narration is profound in many ways and provides us with much to think about in relation to our dealing with others, such as men and women we might encounter who have suffered from some mental illness or who know others who have. The woman who came and approached the Prophet came with the request that the Prophet tend uh, to tend to one of her needs. What stands out at the beginning is the way the Prophet addressed the woman, that woman. There is something ennobling in the prophet in the Prophet's opening address. He addressed a Ya Um Fulan. What this seems to connote is a positioning of the woman in a frame of worthiness and respectability. The woman was already some someone important, someone to be dependent upon, valued, you know, as a mother, who had already gained importance. She was a mother and a mother before, and, and a, a mother before she might have been considered less or different because of a mental disability. Addressing others with titles of respect is an essential feature of politeness and etiquette in, in conversation. Finally, just one, another really beautiful example is, and this is this is quite important because it's to do with violence as well, is the example of uh, Fudala ibn Umayr. Now, after the, uh, the conquest of Mecca, one of the Meccans, uh, Fudala ibn Umayr, though having normally accepted Islam, was keen of revenge, right? So he vowed to assassinate the Prophet So he accepted Islam nominally, but he vowed to assassinate the Prophet As the Prophet was performing tawaf, which is the circumambulation of the Kaaba, 
Fudala had hidden his sword under his clothing and was preparing himself for the dastardly deed he was about to commit. Instantly, he found himself within reach of the Prophet The Prophet looked up at Fudala and asked, what is it that you were saying to, that you were saying to yourself? Fudala brushed off the question by saying he was simply praising Allah. The Prophet smiled at Fudala and said, ask Allah to forgive you, placing his hand on Fudala's chest. Yeah. Fudala would later say, by Allah, from the moment he lifted his hand from my chest, there remained nothing of Allah's creation, except that he was more beloved to me than it. So basically what we learned from these, and there are many other examples, many of these examples that the way the person individualized the person when he related to them, whoever they were, and his relation with them was such that he created from that dynamic. So Fudala, for example, wanted to kill the Prophet Look at how the Prophet related to him in his particular context. Mm-hmm. What were you saying? Say Allah to forgive you. So his utterances were assuming the best of him, even in that context. And the way he touched him and his behavior was such that got the best out of him. He did it with Um Fulan. He did it with Julaybib. He did it with Fudala ibn Umair and many, many others. This we learn the art of prophetic empathy. And the, the art of empathy is to understand people's context and to relate to them in a particular way that gets the best out of them. And this as a prophetic strategy, a sign that we should uh, internalize is phenomenal. And one beautiful thing about the book itself, it talks about, you know, my beautiful, the, some of the beautiful verses in the Quran, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about da'wah itself. So in Surah Fusilat, chapter 41, verses 33 and 34, Allah says in chapter 33, and this is about da'wah, holistic da'wah, and who is better in speech than the one who calls to Allah, does righteousness and says, indeed, I am one of the Muslims. So you call to Allah, you call to Tawheed, the fact that he's worthy of worship, you do righteousness, you do good deeds, you become, you walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Hmm. And what does Allah say? And you, and you are one of those who submit, you're one of the Muslims. This could mean that you link your deeds to the fact that you submit to Allah, but it could also mean that just because you're doing da'wah, it doesn't mean you're special. You're just like one of the Muslims, right? This is a favor Allah has given you because Allah elsewhere, I think in chapter 49, 17, Allah says about those people who think that they came to Islam as a favor to Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah says, say to them that this is a favor Allah has given to you. Iman, faith is Allah's favor. So imagine calling to Iman, calling to faith. It's a compounded favor. Anyway, so that's the first verse, 33. Straight after, what does Allah say? This Verse 34. Good and evil are not the same. Mm. Repel by that which is better. And between two people, there is hatred. It will turn to intimate friendship. And this is connected to the previous verse, verse 33, about holistic doubt. And Allah says, and this is very difficult except for the patient. Now, Allah doesn't follow the word Arabic word repel by a direct object. It doesn't say repel evil. He says, it just says repel. And the scholars say this can mean repel anything by that which is better, which means what is more virtuous and what is more beautiful. And this is how our prophetic characteristic should be. That the, This is how we should emulate the prophetic characteristic because we know that the Prophet had hilm, had this amazing forbearance and he was a manifestation of this in the famous hadith where the Jewish man came and pulled him by the neck because of financial dealings. And the Prophet the way he responded to him, the Jewish man became Muslim because he wanted to see how the person responded to, he wanted to see how the person responded to aggression, 
or, or to these type of scenarios because a sign of prophethood for this Jewish man was that you repel by that which is better. And that's how we should be with all individuals. And coupled with the understanding of empathy, this would be a barrier to othering and dehumanization. Mm. And, you know, what's very interesting uh, about uh, this verse, these, this verse is it's a holistic approach of, of, for Dao and how to be and how to relate with others. Also, and just finding on this point, the book also mentions about, you know, caring for other people. You know, sometimes we have this kind of ethno-religious understanding, which is, I think is problematic. We like Islam to be like a gang. And I think this is, this is extremely problematic that we need to change. And we, we could only change this with prophetic guidance. And the Prophet said, love for humanity what you love for yourself. And this is interesting because uh, this hadith is narrated by Bukhari and it's in Tariq al-Kabir. It's a Sahih authentic hadith. And the Arabic is not love for your brother. It's love for linness, for the people, for humanity what you love for yourself. And yes, we know the famous hadith. Uh, you won't truly believe unless, unless you love for your brother what you love for yourself. But even in this hadith as well, and Nawawi, who collected this as part of his Arba'in, his 40 hadith, it's the 13th hadith in his collection, he comments and says that this means you could love for your human brother, which means what? That you want goodness for them and guidance for them. And this echoes another classical scholar, Ibn Taqiq al-Eid. He also mentions this is some, you know, we need to be committed to the well-being of other people. So the point here is, as Muslims, we have to be committed to the well-being of other people, whoever they are. Jew, Christian, atheist, agnostic, uh, uh, whatever background they have, they, we need to be committed to their well-being. And this is an expression of uh, loving benevolence, which is part of the prophetic practice. And what is the key thing? You want goodness for them and you want guidance for them. And if you have a forbearing character that you repel anything by that which is better and that which is more virtuous and you have empathy, when you combine all of these things together, there will be barriers against othering and dehumanization and Islam has the solution, which is the prophetic way. So these are all the books that we could talk about. I'm so sorry it's gone for so long, but sure. hopefully yeah. you know, I, I, I'm just honored that you, you gave me this, this platform. Oh, it's, this it's, a huge, it's a huge privilege. And, uh, and just to say, by the way, that for people that... Uh, there is actually a video uh, uh, with uh, Dr. Osman Latif uh, and Hamza uh, discussing this very book on YouTube, of course, um, discovered it earlier on. Uh, but uh, but I, I haven't actually got the book, but I think I will uh, get a copy myself. Um, thanks to Hamza's uh, fascinating um, description of his content. So thank you. So th thank you very much indeed, Hamza, for your your time and, um, and your, your great ability to be able to uh, communicate not only the contents of these books, but your enthusiasm and the human dimension of the uh, and its relevance. So even we're talking about abstract matters of philosophy of science, you know, you, you made it relevant to uh, the Muslim experience and, and to Dawa. Uh, that, that's really uh, really helpful, actually. So thank you uh, again, Hamza, for your time and your uh, and your knowledge and expertise in all these areas. Um, and I think, uh, as I said before, I will put um, the, a list of these books um, on the, in the description below um, so we can all follow them up um, at our leisure. So that's one of the points of inviting Hamza is that not only can we hear about the books that have made, uh, had a big impact on your intellectual development, but so we can then um, follow these books up ourselves if, if we should wish to do that. Absolutely. Thank you very much for for giving me the opportunity, Paul, and keep up the great work. Inshallah. And uh, well, and that will we'll conclude it there. And um, thank you. Until next time. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.